going on, Brandon? How are you, man? Hey, Brandon. Hi, guys. How's it going? Uh, rough week. Yeah. I gotta say, I like your uh, your whole getup. I like the thin Lizzie hoodie, but also the wild turkey hat. And I'm a fan of both. Uh, it sums me up pretty well. I'm a fan. Going on, Sterling. If you want a hoodie, a friend of mine's selling them. What, thin Lizzie hoodies? Uh, thin Lizzie hates cops. Oh, nice. That's even better. Yeah. Was the band actually cool? Um, like, as people or, or, or like their politics? Me? Like, I didn't know if, like, because I know very little about them as, you know, political figures. Uh, so when my buddy printed these, we were all like, that rules. What the fuck is, are you talking about, though? So I don't know what their politics are, and none of us do. Mm. Exactly. None of us have really bothered looking into it. My buddy's reasoning is that uh, the lead singer of Thin Lizzy was uh, a black man in Ireland during the Troubles. Yeah. So the there's very is. little likelihood that he is pro-cop. Dude, I made the fucking mistake. I keep doing this, all right? I, gotta, I will stop doing this. I keep making the mistake of talking to people from based countries about their communist movements who now live here in America, and I'm surprised when they don't have favorable things to say about them. Like the other right. night, we were hanging out at this bar who's owned by an Irish woman who owns like several bars. Like she's petite bouge, having a good time here in America. It's treating her well. And but we're hanging I out with her. Already. My wife has known her for like a decade, like super good friends with her. We are just hanging. It's like two in the morning. We are just south. We are just all hammered. And I, for some, I don't remember doing it. I really don't remember bringing up the IRA or asking her about it. She's like, all I remember her saying, like, you, you can't understand what it was like. You, you can't possibly understand what it was like, what it was like to live like. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, so, why, do, why would I think she would possibly have a good thing to say about the IRA being a business owner here in the U.S., like, who obviously left that shit? Like, yeah, it's you, you like... Should, you all... should go uh, talk to the Gusanos and praise Castro and see Exactly, what dude. It's like... <laughs> I was, I was about to say, I've got a lot of white Cuban friends here, and we don't exactly see eye to eye when we get on that topic, and we do get on that topic. <laughs> yeah. I gotta stop making I, that mistake. I, I heard, or I saw a joke somewhere this week, and we all probably should follow the same social media shit, so maybe, maybe you've all heard it already, but it was, uh, what did capitalism do in one year that communism couldn't do in its entire lifetime? Make communism look good. Oh, damn. Yeah, that was a Ferenci quote. I think it was, uh, I think Connor put that in our, um, in our, like, outro for one of the episodes. Oh, uh, that was not where I heard it, because I don't listen to our episodes. That's hilarious. And you, and you recommend your listeners don't either. <laughs> I've, apparently, I'm going to stop doing that. It seems... <laughs> I, I used to own a business. I would often encourage my customers to not buy from me. Mm-hmm. And I was criticized for that heavily as well, but it did not stop me from being too busy to keep up with my orders. <laughs> mm. I won't claim petite bouge as I had no employees. I was a single person <laughs> working. And I got I told you about the, uh, the seven-day Twitter ban. So <laughs> I'm yeah, I there. logged into Twitter because like, if I go to see a tweet, I'm logged in and like it, it said it won't let me see any tweets now. It's like, and I almost oh. started the process and I'm like, let me let Sterling handle that. See if you actually wanted to do that or not. I'm, I'm just going to let it run its seven day course. And it's funny. I had just messaged a comrade. Um, who but you realize it hadn't started yet, right? What? No, the seven days is going. It's just, no, it, basically. it won't start the seven days until you hit the button when you try to log into Twitter. And then it says by hitting next, 
and deleting the tweet, you acknowledge that you violated our terms of service. Because right now, I guess you haven't deleted the tweet. Mine doesn't show that. Mine doesn't even show me what tweet it was. Oh, the one it's the one oh, that says oh, now now it does oh always kill the czars that's yeah, what dude. I got man. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god I was screenshot that okay that must be a new development it it wasn't telling me that at first that's hilarious I mean obviously you can I'm only condone the violence that's built into the system correct <laughs> oh my god I got reported for always kill the czars. I mean, all it takes is one person being mad at you. Like, they don't have to give a shit about the czar. They just found an excuse to report you. Oh, my God. I said way worse stuff than that. But anyway, so, like, it started because, so, Muller, she wrote, is, like, this podcast that uh, I used to listen to when, like, the um, uh, Muller report was first coming out. And they, they were pretty extensive on it. They, like, even made a point to read through the whole report. And that was a yeah, I know, I know. And that was a, a pretty uh, good, a pretty easy way for me to digest the Mueller report because I, I wanted to know what was in it. I wanted to hear the document, kind of formulate my own opinions. And, you know, they circle around fucking dumbass theories and shit that are completely mm -hmm. unbased and just fucking psyop BS. But they really were in the beginning somewhat unbiased and just kind of taking in the opinions, but I, I think what, what happened is they started getting some media attention just because of the name of their podcast, and they started blowing up when they didn't really expect to, and they, they just got sucked into the hemisphere. They just got completely co-opted, trying to win favor with these uh, media organizations, and, I mean, she just really, really went neoliberal quick. But in the beginning, she wouldn't give her name. She said AG. She would never have photos posted anywhere. And she was like really secretive about this government, you know, career she had during it. And then she apparently got fired at some point. She blames it on Trump doing an investigation that involved looking into her. And uh, I don't know how much I believe that. But anyway, it turns out she re she really just worked at the VA. Um, but the way she always portrayed it on the podcast was some like super secretive government, you know, uh, program she was a part of. And even on her, their website, she just said she, she works for the feds or, or something like that, or she's a federal employee, something like that. So I just fucking circled around where she says she's a federal employee and posted on Twitter. And I was like, yo, you dumbass. <laughs> she's literally mask off a fed. And then, she like posts some article where she did an interview on her actual career and all of her little justice warriors came through and they're like, she worked for the VA. She helped people get healthcare. And I'm like, okay. Did she so. responded herself with that article. Yeah, she did. Yeah. She, she actually got really responsive uh, for a period, which surprised me. Cause I mean, they're a, a very large podcast. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, I don't really know who to compare them to, but I would say only a handful are bigger, like Pod Save America, obviously mm -hmm. bigger, but I mean, they're definitely in that oh, B shit, tier dude. level. So, like, um, anyway, she responds, and her Twitter followers talking about she's in the VA, and I, I was like, whatever. I wasn't about to sit there and be like, okay, you win, I'm done. But I left it, I left the Fed thing alone because, sure, okay, you, you didn't have a real fucking actual secretive fucking PSYOP job. He's still spreading fucking bullshit that started by psyops. But then I just asked her because she was a huge uh, advocator for Biden Harris and, you know, huge rallied behind him, rallies her fucking fans behind him. 
And she started it by making a comment saying, you'd be surprised to find out that I'm not an imperialist or a neoliberal. I hadn't even used the word neoliberal at that point. I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, let's go there. If you are an advocator for Biden and Harris, and you actually understand what those organizations, what those, that administration is do- doing and what the previous administration that Biden was a part of was doing and what the Democrats as a whole do, then can you really call yourself not an imperialist, not a neoliberal, if you are such a, a big advocator for the proponents of the system? Mm-hmm. And she'd just like start making poop jokes, like made mom jokes. and no, you know, what? Like, yeah, com- completely dodging the the fucking question, and then like all the little justice warriors jumped in there, like, "Oh, what, what do you think? You know, is the lesser of two evils?" And then I just like slapped them around a few times because not even any of them had takes, let alone bad or good takes. Like it was just non takes. How long before they accused you of being a misogynist? Actually, that never happened. Um, that, I'm shocked. That never I'm actually shocked. It, like, literally shocked. No, uh, as soon as someone had asked what my ideological uh, views were, and I just said tanky comrade, and I don't even think they knew what a tanky was because they then come back with like this weird fucking Wikipedia thing, and they're like, according to X Y Z, uh, that means that you are pro uh, murdering civilians and all this, and I'm uh, like, okay. I'm like, you have no idea what a tanky is. I was like, we killed the Nazis, and then they're like. Blah, blah, blah. And then I made the comment. I was like, I'm guessing you would have voted the czars out. And they said something. And I was like, always kill the czars, comrades. And, uh, you know, back and forth. Yeah. A couple stupid quotes like that. But AG for Mueller, she wrote, would keep coming back and just making, like, these little snippy remarks that weren't even conversations involving her. Like, I'm dunking on her fans at that point, which are completely uneducated. Thank you to their neoliberal master. And I'm just like dunking left and right on these idiots. Ward jumps in and tags in and dunks on a few of them. And she would just jump in every now and then. And I just Mm -hmm. ask the same question. I'm like, okay, you keep saying you're not an empirist. You're not a neoliberal. How can you advocate for Biden? And then she'd go right. Right, exactly. I was like, just give me an answer. Like, you have to have a theory in your head unless in your own mind you're like, fuck, I am a neoliberal and an imperialist but anyway long story short um so i guess she probably actually wasn't the one that banned me because i don't even think she would have saw that comment that was like uh threads deep with like her little fucking army Hmm. you know how we all have those friends who like are are inching their way leftward but don't necessarily have like a sincere ideology they're just slowly coming to the realization that uh capitalism has failed us in the most astounding way possible that's where most of us start. Yeah, well, I have a friend who's like very like adamantly remaining in that position. He inches leftward, <laughs> but like if I have any sort of conversation or argument with him, he just gets mad and yells at me, and then like a year and a half later agrees with me. Um, yeah. It's a very frustrating process, but I've known the dude for 15 years, so I'm not going to shit on him for it. But I said something about how like Biden was no better than Trump, or arguably worse in respect to handling COVID because now everybody's just back to brunch and like the world like pittsburgh's getting their shit fucking wrecked right now i don't know how philly's doing but like yeah it's really fucking bad here there's no relief it's just go to work and suck it up and he got livid with me he's like that sort of attitude what's up no go ahead oh i mean that's basically the end of it he just got really upset and started telling me like all of these things that biden had done and they were like really like 
And like he's appointed all these liberal judges, and I'm like, yeah, let me know how that works out for you. Yeah. Let, let me know like how much money you get in COVID relief from the liberal judges that he appointed. I mean, remember when Trump was going to jail? He was going to go to jail, right? Come on. You guys told me as soon as he was out of office, <laughs> that guy was going straight to prison. Oh, my goodness. Even, not even from a leftist perspective. I never had the slightest, ink, like, because once, once, that's breaking the seal on presidential accountability. Yeah, it cannot they cannot do that shit. Yeah, it's, it's pretty bad in uh, Colorado here, too. Like, I think we're almost out of ICU beds or something. And like, let's remember that it's only going to get worse going into winter. So, I want to know what the anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers are actually mad about. It's like COVID is kind of just running rampant. It's like doing its thing, and we're just letting it. We're not taking it seriously. Still, we're acting like it's just not even going on. And it's at the worst point it's been, and it continues to be at that point for months on end. And everybody's just like, "No, it's cool, bro. Biden, Biden's good. Like no orange man." <laughs> A bunch of my coworkers uh, got fired for this mask mandate thing because we're. Uh doing government contracts here we have to have or not ma uh vaccine mandate i mean so all the anti-vax guys are like oh you know fauci's gonna like steal my soul or whatever and uh i i don't know i went off on one of them and called him a fucking idiot but uh connor turn on your video i didn't even realize you were here how's it going man uh sorry i'm working on it it's like okay. i said it's um the different process every time yeah i always forget the issues. sorry <laughs> it's no it's every single time so I am working on it. Bear with me. Just on like the COVID thing. I mean, we just topped 5 million deaths worldwide. So to put that into perspective, that is a quarter of the Florida population. That is if a quarter of the Florida population were to drop dead in one year. I mean, it mm -hmm. just blows my mind how, how people still just think it's, it's fucking nothing. I mean, I'm sure we're all guilty of, of doing things like going into a store and not wearing a mask because you're like, oh, I'm vaccinated. I'm okay. And it's like, it's guilty. That's how I got fucking COVID. Yeah, we, right? <laughs> we could definitely all be smarter about what we're doing, but to just completely deny 5 million deaths is crazy to me. But then like fucking every year on 9-11 for a literal fraction of a percentage of of that many deaths like is stops the whole fucking world blows my mind yeah well, i mean i think that's why people were trying to use the argument that it's it's a 9-11 every day when we were having like 25 it still didn't even work it still didn't even work and they were just like right. nah personal choice well covid isn't brown people well i support brown people's personal choice to fly planes into buildings <laughs> yeah and it wasn't even like the white people that died. It was the, you know, brick and mortar and elevator shafts and other things that are actually valuable in this world. <laughs> Brandon, how did uh, COVID treat you being vaccinated? Sucked. Uh, for, four, uh, for two days, I was just wrecked. And then I started feeling better. And then on day four, I was again wrecked. And then day five, I started healing up. It was either day six or seven that I almost ended up in the hospital. Jesus. Um, oh, wow. Not like for obvious reasons. It's hard to even explain. Like I was sitting on the couch watching a movie and suddenly I just, I was like, how much, how fucking high am I right now? Cause I realized that the movie had gone off and I'd just been staring at the wall for like five minutes. Oh no. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my God, how fucking high did I get? And I looked around and realized I'd, didn't have my bowl and I had not smoked weed that day. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so I called up a friend of mine who was the exact wrong person to call because his dad died from COVID a few months ago. So he's like extra oh, not yeah. like yeah. He, he's go to the hospital if anything seems off. And but he was the first person I thought to call, and he was like, "You need to go to the fucking hospital immediately." And I'm like, "You're wrong." But I like I was completely out of it and like completely like wrecked. And so I looked it up online, and uh, that actually is one of the symptoms that you're supposed to go to the hospital for sudden onset like confusion. Mm -hmm. um, what I actually did to avoid it is the reason that you get confusion is because your blood oxygen will drop from like your lungs being fucked up and not able to absorb oxygen efficiently or whatever. Uh, so I had a friend of mine run to the uh, run to the, the store to buy like a portable blood oximeter. And so when I knew that my blood God. oxygen levels were fine, I avoided going to the hospital. But like, yeah, it, it literally for two or three hours, I just suddenly was it was like I was as high as I could fucking be. I could barely form sentences. Damn. Wait, a blood oximeter? Yeah. You could just buy that at the store? I was shocked, too. They're like 30 bucks. What do you, so, so like you hook that up and it's just like, well, oh, there's this machine. It's doing it's shit in my blood. That's it. You have to draw blood? You just put, oh, you put it on your finger. Yeah. Just, oh, they have those at the doctor's office every time you go. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so it's you just take it easy like, and calm down. And I never figured out what happened. I had already started feeling a little bit better by the time my buddy came back with it. And then uh, we tested my, I, I was still kind of out of it, but my, my blood oxygen was like 98, 99%. So we were like, all right, well, I'm not going to die. So that's a bummer, but I guess whatever. So this is vaccinated, um, and then do you know or do you think you had the Delta variant? I don't know, but I think that's the one that's, like, tearing ass through the city right now. So if I had I to make an assumption, it would be that. I know that the vaccine is less effective against that, and of my friend group or people adjacent to my friend group, I think last count was 12 people got COVID, and of those 12, 12 of them were vaccinated. Oof. Brandon, stop being such a hoe. Like, you just can't keep being so popular with, the, with everyone. Uh, the other theory on what happened is that because we all got sick the night that I cut my dread off, uh, what had happened was my dread had been absorbing all of the ambient COVID in the world around me, and then when they cut it off, it just released it all into the air at the bar because realistically like it had to have been a lot of exposure because there was so much alcohol in my body that day that nothing could live through that i think i think i'm still gonna go with the samson theory that you were weakened by removing the dread and that's why you got covid because that at least has biblical precedent so i'm gonna go with that i love the term biblical precedent yeah i just made it up isn't it great yeah but yeah, I, I know at least uh, three people, including you, Brandon, that have gotten COVID after getting vaccinated, uh, including my mom this week just got it. So Jesus. that sucks. But uh, yeah, my, and my one coworker uh, who, who had a pretty rough time of it, he's, he's older than all of us. But, but yeah, I think my mom's doing okay. So, uh, you know, yeah. fingers crossed. Yeah, okay. yeah I, uh, I'm not going to make it sound like it was the worst thing ever. Getting the vaccine actually made me way sicker, but just for a day instead of a week. Okay. That being right. said, I think that if I weren't vaccinated, it would be really optimistic to think that I would have stayed out of the hospital. Yeah. Because as, as hard as it fucked me up, knowing that that was like everything being reduced symptoms and all that shit, like, no, it, I, I had a solid week after the incident where I thought I was fucking high or whatever, mm -hmm. about a week where I had pretty severe brain fog and even being out of the house for an hour or two was enough to completely drain my energy. Seriously. Damn.
Yeah. Sweet. All right. Uh, well, let's start off uh, with various car updates. Brandon, I don't know what you got going on, but uh, you've been dealing with COVID, so probably not too much, but I don't know. What do you got? I found another car that I might buy. <laughs> Sweet. How, how many would that be for you? Shut up. <laughs> it would be 13. The, the fun thing is it's three blocks from my house and it's a 1967 Cutlass Supreme. Oh, yes, nice. I do already own a 1967 Cutlass Supreme. That's what makes it so convenient because I already know how everything works and is wired. It has no drivetrain and it's 1500 bucks. So like, yeah, hard, hard to say no to. Um, well, how's, the, how's the rust on it? Non-existent. Ooh. It is in moderately better condition than my car, which my car is not awful, but the one area on my car that is a little bit rough is not bad on that car. Oh, sweet. It's missing a couple of things that are frustrating, like no bumpers, but it has, it's, it's fairly complete for something with no drivetrain. But I didn't buy it immediately. I have to get back in touch with the dude to see if he still has it because I'm not working right now. So I decided to be responsible. But he happened to have an Oldsmobile intake so I bought that from him, but he told me it was big block and it was small block. So I'm going to go talk hey. to him and see if I can get my money back or just resell it. I don't know. Cause it was dirt cheap. Like it's a $400 intake that I got for 80 bucks. It just doesn't work like on my engine, which I thought it would. Uh, but I got my engine put partially back together enough to figure out that that intake is not going to work. So I should be able to put the intake on, on my motor and then be ready to drop it into my car. I am. Um, Dealing with like the worst bout of depression I've had in years. So I basically like all of that happened last week and I haven't done fuck all in, in since then. I mean, that's not, that's not terrible. I mean, hard to do it every day. <laughs> Sometimes I go weeks without doing shit. I, I realized for the last two months, I spent six weeks severely injured or pro probably five weeks, pretty severely injured. And then two weeks quarantined with COVID with like a probably two week stretch in between those fucking things. Yeah, it's just been frustrating as fuck to even be alive lately. Yeah, I can imagine. Having COVID is also a really stark reminder that you live in a failed state. Yeah, dude. I was also going to ask how the toe was. Still attached. It's uh, not, doesn't hurt anymore. That's good. Yeah, toes feel quick. I actually forgot about that. I hurt myself so regularly that something like dislocating my toe just does not register for me. Dude, I got to tell you, it's making a great intro for the first episode of this series. <laughs> was that was that episode one yeah that was yeah. Like in the first 15 minutes dude wow what an introduction jesus for, for our patrons on that episode we have like a 40 fucking minute intro including like some car talk and then brandon breaking his toe it's great <laughs> well good we're, we're here to we're here to please the crowd i guess yeah, buddy <laughs> dude this is like my second episode my, my, yeah the second episode i've done with you guys sober like i'm 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 ruining my uh, my my street cred as the resident shit show of of our podcast. I'm sure, you'll still be able to manage, right? You got a few bad puns or something can come in at the wrong time. It'll it'll work. Don't worry. Uh, I know. So we have Bryant listening in. He's at work though, so like he's doing this podcast on the clock, which uh, we support. That's awesome. Base. <laughs> yeah, fuck your boss. So hopefully his boss has gone home and he can talk but i don't know so we'll give brian a second to um chime in if he's got any uh car updates because i know he's been working with that transmission and shit on the uh mr2 so let's see if he's got a second he can chime in otherwise we'll move on 
Yeah, Connor, why don't you go first and I'll, I'll be there in like a couple minutes. Okay, I'll blab around for a minute. I just got my hands full here. Fair enough. All right, so I've got just a million things going on, which is not great. I don't like when there's a million things going on with the car. That's usually not a good sign. So spent all this time, all this money waiting on this engine rebuild and everything. And it went to the tuner a third time. And then we found the reason why it's having a hard time getting tuned. And that is leaks all over the fucking intake. Mm. <laughs> so it's the um, there's a lower intake manifold and then there's a lower plenum and an upper plenum. I don't know. They, it's some kind of clamshell like thing. It sticks together. The air goes into that, whatever. Um, so there. Yeah. So the upper plenum that I have is one that I've had for probably about a year now, but it's the same exact style as the one that I have. I had for, I don't know, seven ish years. It's a composite material though. So it's not metal and it has a shitty cork gasket that you're supposed to reuse. So the first one I had held up for a number of years on and off, whatever, whenever I had to take it off, it was fine. Eventually, it started to like crack because the thing's a little bit uh, not the strongest in terms of like torquing it down. And you're supposed to put it to like five foot pounds of torque, which is very little. Yeah. By the way, the whole time I had no idea that that was the case for the first several years. So I just torqued it down to, you know, reasonably tight. Yeah. So anyway, it started to crack. I got a new one when I had the valve covers changed. Um, and that was like a year or two ago or whatever. Um, and then I had the whole engine rebuilt. So I had, the, it was new, it should have held up, but lo and behold, it did not. So they found it by doing a pressure test on it, which this tuner that I'm going to, they build a lot of like fourth gen Supras, which I mean, seriously, this shop has got like 20 Supras at it at any given time. It's fucking outrageous. So what they do for checking uh, boost leaks is they've got some kind of pressure device. It'll plug up. Your throttle body, it's kind of adjustable, and they put pressure to it and then sprayed the soapy water on it. And, uh, yep, they found leaks everywhere. At the throttle body, at the intake, and so that's where it's pulling air in, which is uh -huh. why I was having... So that's why I was having an issue at idle and low RPM, but not at high RPM. So that's kind of the giveaway. I was hoping that having a fresh rebuild would take me away from those issues, but... You know, that's how it goes. So I was just not very lucky with this intake. So I'm switching back to the stock style with a spacer instead so that I don't have this issue going forward. But that's a whole fucking thing because it's like I have to start a new job really soon and I'm out of town next week. So it's like I have to get all these pieces together, get the car to the shop, all that stuff. So I've been very busy with like getting wheels and tires mounted, moving this from tuner shop, whatever, all this fucking shit. Um, it's been very busy, very nerve wracking, and it is cutting into what was supposed to be a nice long break between jobs. And it's mm. mostly just been filled with stress. So that's shitty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and right now, the car is in a, a separate shop. So not the tuner, not the shop I usually go to. It's at a different shop right now because I needed to get the steering rack done. Which, you know, if it was just that, I'd probably try and do it myself, but probably for the best I didn't, because all, all the lines were fucked up. Listening to this makes me so sad for your bank account. It's awful. Um, yeah. But, like, I saved up for a couple of years to do all this work. So, like, 
I had some padding. Like I was like, all right, I'm dropping the fucking money. I'm not playing around. I'm not going to nickel and dime shit. It's going to get done. So the rack was leaking. So I'm getting the rack replaced. Then they call me today when I was getting outer tie rods too, because I had these uh, Megan racing ones that just didn't, didn't really hold up. So they were looking kind of shitty and the steering has been fucked for a while. Like it is sketchy. Like I haven't even really, I've been trying to be careful testing when I really punch it. Cause like, you hit the gas and like the whole car just like shifts over to the, uh, to the right. <laughs> like it's, it's so like, is, and then as soon as you come off the power it shifts back to the left. So it's one of those, it's kind of sketchy. So, so I was having the rack done outer tie rods. I'm switching to new, better, you know, SPL ones, which are, you know, super pricey, but hopefully they hold up better. Uh, and then they called me today and they're like, Oh yeah, your inners are bad too. And I was like, son of a bitch. All right, well change them. You know, I don't get, I don't, I'm kind of mad because uh, they're, I feel like should have held up much better, but you know, whatever. I kind of got to get it done now. Um, and so it's going to get an alignment, all that shit. And with the power steering lines, they did not have any locally. So they're getting them like, I don't know, from somewhere else across the country. I'm paying extra to have it shipped two day air. And there's no guarantee that they'll get it Friday. And if they don't, I'm going to have to, while I'm out of town, figure out a way to get that car to move from one shop to the other. Jesus. Whether that's, a, yeah, whether that's a tow or my, my guy at the other shop, if he's got time, maybe he can pick it up. But it's like, it's a real pain in my ass. So uh, I was on a tight schedule and um, I am probably not going to meet that schedule. So, you know, a usual story. Yeah, my bank account is in pain for sure. And this was the easy option. Have someone else build all this shit for me. Like, oh, I'm going to go to professionals and get this done. And it really didn't didn't work out for me. So to be fair, I didn't want to fucking touch like, you know, timing components. And like, there's a lot of shit that I just simply could not do myself. So mm -hmm. it is what it is. If it was just a rack replacement, I would fuck with that. But, you know, when you got to get into alignment and stuff, I'm like, well, I don't have the equipment to do that in a garage or whatever or the time or the skill or you name it. So, you know, lots of money, lots of time. And I'm now quickly running out on like, I got to start this new job really soon and I need a working car. So, yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, one of those, I was really hoping that like, oh no, this is for the first time, I'm going to be solid. Like it's all being done by professionals. I'm going to have plenty of time. I'm not going to be on a complete time crunch. And uh, turns out I am. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> Funny enough, uh, I completely forgot until you brought up having an intake leak that I spent two days this week fucking with an intake leak. Nice. You, you never expect it. Like, you're always like, no, no, it's definitely not that. I know it's got all the symptoms of that, but it's not. It's oh, no, it's, this has been a routine problem for my van. So as soon as it started lean popping at 2200 RPMs, and that's when that happens on my van, uh, it, what it means is. Uh, your engine's making a lot of vacuum, but around 2000 to 2200, it stops making as much vacuum and the air's moving more freely. So the intake would only leak when you get over that point because the vacuum was sealing the leak. So whenever it would start lean popping over 2000 RPMs, I immediately recognized that uh, my carb spacer was coming loose again. And this time it started lean popping at 1600 RPMs, which meant that I could barely even fucking drive it and that it was fucking loose as shit and it turned out my spacer was so severely warped that there was just no saving it and i had to buy a new spacer 
I love when that happens. I mean, it's a plastic spacer that's probably 20 years old. There was, n- I'm oh, impressed really? that it did its job so well for so long. Yeah. Now I, I'm, I'm all right. Now I'm impressed. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was so warped that like the plastic had expanded to the point where it was almost molded to the bottom of the carburetor, like the way that there are yeah. like lines and, and all, like, it's not just like a flat piece. It's, it's got features to it and the plastic was molded into that. Gotcha. Yeah. Sorry, I was so a bit totally distracted by Sterling in this robe. I can't get over Sterling in this robe, dude. My God, yeah, it's like <laughs> like you like what you see. <laughs> That's delicious, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of thinking, like hearing you guys. This kind of feels like of the series on Walter Ruther with you guys. This feels like the Empire Strikes Back episode where we're like we're getting everybody's getting hit from every direction. Like we're this is like the down episode. Like we're gonna talk through it though. Oh, this is funny. It's I mean. Yeah, this that's what this episode is, one hundred percent. We are at that point in the timeline. Gotta go through it. I, I feel like listeners aren't prepared. Like we've gone through, oh yeah, there's strikes and stuff, and it's like, no, now the shit's gonna get real. Like Walter is now on people's fucking radar and it's gonna be some shit. Oh, I meant like with you guys in your cars and like Brandon getting COVID, but then if it ties into the story as well, great. I mean that's just a that's just a bonus. Yeah, it's just the mood of where we're at, yeah. both in our personal lives and in the story here. Uh, Brian, yeah, are you available? Can you uh, give us your car update? Sorry, go ahead, Brandon, if you have something. Oh, I, I was just going to say I'm extremely mentally ill, so I, can, I have no real, like, grounding. Just everything in my life constantly feels like a, a pretty wild ride. So if this is, uh, what did you say? Uh, With the Empire Strikes Back? Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, this, this might be that. I have, I have no grounding in reality. <laughs> yeah, I, I can talk for a second here. All right, what do you got? And Brandon, uh, I wanted to say I was editing that last episode that went out and you were talking about your mental health problems. And I'm like, yeah, uh, uh, OK, uh, I don't know how to deal with that shit right now. So I'm just going to make jokes about it. But uh, <laughs> so sorry if I wasn't being uh, respectful about that. Oh, no, like I, I only know how to deal with it by joking about it. I even asked Connor off air this week if if I should like tone that shit down because I'm like, uh, this might just be off putting for me to like openly discuss the fact that I just don't enjoy being alive. And he, he was he gave me positive feedback. It's all good. No, I feel like it actually works as long as you don't mind us also dealing with it in the only way we know how, which is to joke about it. And I feel like it especially works because I'm sure a lot of leftists can empathize, especially, you know, we want to avoid ableism, so we would like to talk about mental health issues, especially. I don't have the like wherewithal to not say what I'm thinking at any given time. So it just comes out. And if that normalizes it, cool. And if it makes me kind of off-putting to be around, then just don't be around me or don't listen to me. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Based. Yeah, once again, don't listen to our podcast. <laughs> no, we, were, we weren't doing that. We already talked about that. <laughs> All right, sorry, Brian, uh, your car stuff? Yeah, well, I, I had my own mental health stuff because uh, I think I told y'all I, I had a breakup uh, a couple weeks ago. And so I was kind of moping around the house, uh, not doing a whole lot which isn't as easy when you don't have a moped to mope around on. <laughs> but um, I, uh, <laughs> this last weekend, I did manage to get a lot of stuff done on my car. I finally got the, all the motor mounts disconnected, all the bolts off the transmission, angled the engine down. Uh, I might have run the air conditioning compressor into the frame rail and, and tweaked that. So let's see. If, uh, let's hope the AC works for next summer. But yeah, I got the transmission off, got the clutch and the flywheel off. And so I got the flywheel in the back of my um, 
my Sabru right now. So I got to take that to get resurfaced and uh, get some new hardware. Cause I guess the clutch kit I got didn't come with any hardware. So I'll probably just go to fast. Oh, that's horse shit. That is horse yeah. shit. What? <laughs> Um, I, wow. I should probably I should probably double check in the package to make sure I didn't miss it. But yeah, there's you know no like though? flywheel boats or bolts or anything. Well, that was um, what was the price of that clutch kit again? Because I remember you saying like the price, and I was like, dear God, that's very inexpensive. I should look into getting an MR2. What was the price on that again? <laughs> uh, it was under two hundred, I think, for the clutch kit. But then I don't know, maybe another fifty, sixty bucks for everything else. I mean, I feel like hardware shouldn't be that expensive, but two hundred dollars is very inexpensive for a clutch kit. Yeah, well, and I the last time I did this, I cheaped out on it, so I'm glad I'm replacing it with good stuff now because when I took it off, the uh, throwout bearing was just leaking grease everywhere, so it was about to to you know seize up or whatever. Yeah, um, it was going to be a problem soon anyway. <laughs> yeah, but um, so I don't know. I'm on my way on that, and and then I I don't know if I talked about it, but my uh. My other car, my Sabaru, got a um, flat tire uh, last week, so I had to, you know, do the little patch thing where you, you plug the little rubber thing in there and you hope it doesn't leak. So it hasn't leaked yet, so we'll see. Once drifted on a tire, um, I've drifted on a couple tires where I put that rubber plug in there. Um, I once drifted on a tire where I put one of those plugs in the sidewall, which you're definitely not supposed to do. I, Brandon's shaking his head. But I, it made it for three laps before it. I mean, I shredded it in that time anyway, so it didn't matter. But like, it was sketchy. I was like, "Ooh, I could really blow out and have a problem here." Nice. It was fun though. I mean, that's just bad peace of mind. You, look, you you learn to deal with it when when the car's going sideways. You're just like, "Well, this could be it. <laughs> At any point, this could be it." So, whatever. Yeah, but when I think this could be it, I'm like, fingers crossed. <laughs> at one point i did in my younger and broker days i did drive a car i know at, at least on one tire you could see some of the metal poking through on like the edges or like even some of the flat part and yep. uh somebody was like yeah that's a really worn down tire like that's incredibly dangerous like you're a fucking madman i'm like all right i'll see you later i'm gonna go try to save up enough money for a tire like <laughs> oh yeah fun time. look in there yeah look i don't know if um just for any listeners who might be interested, if you are broke and you need tires, um, seriously, go, I mean, be careful, you know, try not to get caught, but uh, dealerships throw out tires and they have to pay to get rid of them. So if you need tires, you can go to the dealership dumpster and uh, you're essentially garbage picking and you can play dumb and be like, oh, I don't know any better, which yeah. you're doing them a favor. So they are, they're not interested in coming after you for that. So I feel like you should just be able to ask them even during business hours. Like, can I just take can. these off your hands? Like you can some, but here's the thing because of, they go, Oh, liability. Oh, technically, oh, the fuck. Yes. Yep. Sterling, That's Sterling, the problem. Were you going to say why? If you would like even better tires, then you break into the glass and then go directly into the dealership. <laughs> <laughs> Sterling. And, and they, they want you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone uh, want to hear a funny story that pertains to what Sterling just said? Yes, yes. I do. If you don't mind, on the air. <laughs> I was not the one who did this, so, and I'm not going to name names, so yeah, I'm good with it. Um, I knew some, some folks who were lunatics, and one of their friends got into a bind, so they decided to drive. It was like 200 miles to go help them out. And after like 
very few miles, I want to say they were like 50 miles into the trip, uh, they got a flat tire and they were broke. So they found a nearby rental car place and just stole the wheels off of it. Mm. Or a found nice. car and stole the wheels off of, of the rental car yeah. in like the back of the lot. So like, you know, possible they didn't even like notice it for a day or two or something. Yeah, easily. <laughs> they, they wanted yeah. them to do it. It's win-win. I'm not even going mean, to add to that. That's kind of genius, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah, you do what you got to do. There's, I mean, the security there is not great, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Take like nowadays, I'm not broke, so I just go spend 10 bucks at the fucking junkyard for used tires. I'm, I'm a baller like that. <laughs> if I'd known that was an option when I was 23, it would have been nice. Right. By the way, <laughs> Mike, uh, if, if we're being real, um, I have spent a good amount of time driving on metal belts. Same. I mean, as a consequence of like drifting through all the, all the tread on your tires. Oh. Yeah, you'd be surprised how, uh, how well tires can hold up. I mean, oh, look, okay, if, if your tires get that bad, yes, you should change them. It's not safe, technically. It's probably not. If, if it rains, you know, it's an issue, but they'll get you to where you got to go. So, yeah. Dude, when I was 22, 23, for a year and a half, I drove a car that didn't have a rear passenger side window. Yeah, sounds about I didn't even put a trash bag over it because the trash bag kept coming off. I just drove it like that. <laughs> hey, if it works, it works. Yeah, I was a pizza delivery guy, so I was, like, fully in that car all the time. Damn. Oh, yeah, you can just keep the key on then. Or yeah. the AC, whatever. You do what you got to do. No, the AC did not work in that car. <laughs> <laughs> well, then it was Probably good. The window was broken. Did, uh, Brian, did you go, or? I can't remember. And he was in the middle of it, and then we started riffing. Yeah. Oh, that happens. <laughs> no, that's about all I had. Okay. Right, He's I don't feel so bad. All right. Well, uh, on that note, we should probably start uh, talking about uh, our friend uh, Walter Ruther. And before we do, I want to just uh, get myself going. One more shot of Malort here. Malort. Helps, helps, <laughs> with the story, helps with the storytelling. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the topic. I'm already on beer three, so. What I always tell people is basically a centimeter from literally deep-throating the mic is the perfect position. Oh, yeah, I did not realize that that was the case before you were saying that right now. Yeah, like, do, do what you were doing. Like, push that mic farther away from you and let them hear you talk and then bring it closer and show them the difference. I went from having the mic about right here, which is where I always record with. Yeah, so I usually say To having it right here, and he's saying Dude. that it is. Dude, you went from sounding like you were on headphones to sounding like you have a microphone. Yeah, yeah it is much better. Day. Well, day, I didn't man. know that. Because I don't listen to our podcast. So. <laughs> Come on, buddy. <laughs> I literally was explaining that I figured out how bad my audio quality was because I finally listened to an episode of our podcast and was like, holy shit, why did no one tell me how bad I sound? Yeah. It works. Get it done. Yeah. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll be a real podcast someday. Even Brett and Brian from uh, Street Fight told me to, like, it doesn't really matter if anyone listens to you just keep doing it and eventually they will or whatever. And I was like, yeah, I don't really care. I actually kind of just like the guys that I host with. So I don't really care if people listen. I just like hanging out and we record it. That sounds like exactly what I picture those guys saying. If you were to ask him that kind of question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're super chill. I low-key think I offended Brian, but like I apologized and hopefully that meant something. 
That's the fucking OGs, man. I got a lot of respect for them. Well, I like I went to their live show here a little while back, and it like we were all hanging out afterwards because it wasn't like a huge crowd, but it was a decent crowd, and everybody was hanging out outside. And Brian is exactly as awkward as you think he would be. Um, <laughs> like not not in a bad way, just he is. He really is the person that he depicts himself to be. Like I respect it. Awesome. But, but like he was trying to be social because like they they do like on on stage they're fine. But like afterwards he's obviously like a little awkward. And he like walked up. I was talking to like two or three other people because like half the crowd there had podcasts. Yeah, and, of course. <laughs> yeah. So we we were all discussing that. And Brian walks up, and I'm I like jokingly looked at him and was just like, actually, we're having a conversation. If you don't mind. Uh, <laughs> 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 and I assumed it would immediately register as a joke, but he actually yeah. kind of looked like bummed out. And I'm like, dude, I'm just kidding. Like, yeah. obviously, we're here to see you, dude. Come on in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> Since we're doing this, I, I thought to grab a thing to show Mike because he, I think he kind of didn't believe. Uh, this is how much of my hair I cut off the other day. <laughs> I believed you. I just was like, I'm in shock more than disbelief, I would say. Like, yeah, it's a lot. That is impressive. I'm still going with the Samson theory. I believe it. When did I learn what based means? Well, that's that, good. It's, it's real based cringe. It just agrees with know. you politically and cringes when they don't. <laughs> based is when it's... The tankies uh, are based. Got it. Exactly, yeah, yeah. dude. Based is when tanky cringes ultra whatever else. Everything else Everything falls else. under ultra. Yeah. I think every, everyone can be based as long as they have a robust critique and can back it up. Sounds like something an anarchist would say. <laughs> I'm, I'm the, I'm the pro-left unity guy, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm pro-left unity, I just want to... I'm just pro-left unity so I can drag them all further left. Unite behind this tank, bitch. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Turn Left This Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him, and tonight I'm here with Sterling, he, him, and with us again from the Cars and Comrades podcast, we have Connor, he, him, Brandon, he, him, and Brian, he, him. And we're going to continue our series on Walter Ruther. Um, So I guess this will be part four. And uh, yeah, so I will just hand it over to Connor again, and we can pick up where we left off on the last episode. Okay. So, uh, quick recap where we were, we kind of introduced. Our characters, our enemies, all that good stuff. Walter, a uh, socialist organizer, a later president of the UAW, and he pioneered a lot of the strike strategies that were used in the late 1930s to unionize uh, the big three, Ford, Chrysler, and uh, GM. So uh, kind of at the point in the story we're at now, they have managed to secure union recognition and contracts with GM and Chrysler, during World War II in 1941, they eventually got the contract with Ford as well. So this was, you know, a huge credit to Walter and Victor Ruther, who had a real strategy for getting these strikes done and getting actual real gains for working people at the time. 
both in and out of the union because of course what happens with the labor movement affects essentially workers throughout the country right now of course a lot of that success does come from the communists that were also in the union who you know got yeah. ran out so, of the union by walter ruther yeah yeah i'm following yeah, you we'll, we'll, we'll be talking we'll be talking <laughs> about that much more today but you know a, a lot of that success is from communist organizers as well so it was kind of walter had a big part to play uh, of course, so did the communists, although I feel like as the, the saying kind of goes, history is written by the winners. So we're going to hear more about Walter is mm -hmm. what it comes down to. Okay, so after significant wins uh, at both GM and Chrysler, uh, as well as at this point, a huge blow to Ford's public image um, after the Battle of the Overpass, which was, of course, where the Ford company thugs beat up Walter Ruther and some other UAW organizers, and some women from the Women's Auxiliary who were there. The other guy who was there was uh, Richard Finkelstein, uh, and he was actually leading that effort. So, I mean, he was up in UAW leadership as well. Uh, so the two of them were roughed up pretty good by Ford Company thugs, and this, you know, then they lied about the whole situation, and of course, photos came out later because there was a journalist who managed to sneak away with negatives of, of the events. Uh, and so Ford looked really, really shitty. So at this point, we're going to kind of take a step back to April of 1938. So this is after that incident, but before Ford was actually unionized in 1941. And the reason we're taking a step back is this is getting into sort of the risks of union organizing back in the 20th century. So I'll rag on Walter for not being radical enough or giving into anti-communist you know, bullshit, but you can't really say the guy was not putting his shit on the line. I mean, his life, the lives of his family, he made some fucking enemies. So we're going to talk about a little bit of this. So going back in April 1938, two masked gunmen forced their way into Ruther's Detroit home during a party and attempted to abduct him. While they were trying to beat Ruther into submission, one guest managed to flee and summon help. The assailants were eventually arrested, and their trial proved to be a sham. Um, so a lot of this is talked about by uh, our, our wonderful friend Michael Parenti in hey. his kind of... Yeah, so this is where he was talking about a lot of what happened here. Um, mm -hmm. and, and other documentaries actually didn't even touch on this subject, weirdly enough. So the assailants were uh, eventually arrested, but their trial proved to be a sham. Facing a jury uh, packed sorry, with... Yeah. Is it uh, isn't Michael Parenti also one of the probably the foremost figures speaking out saying that like Ruther was assassinated even to this day? Like, I, I mean, yes. who else is even left putting that forward? You know, us. Yeah, uh, us and Michael. Look at this. Us and Hell Michael yeah, Parenti. buddy. Hell yeah. <laughs> Ooh, okay, it's kind of a forgotten battle, man. Like, like y'all said, you didn't even know who Walter Ruther is before we brought the topic up. I didn't know who he was before. We started doing our podcast where obviously we get into like labor organizing in the auto industry a good bit. So yeah. like he's and he's only come up tangentially even before this. I mean, this is really the first time we're taking a good hard look. And that's why it's like this is an important story. Again, yeah, but he comes up yeah. tangentially a lot because like, again, I'll take both sides. I have my criticisms of him. He, he fought the good fight, man. Like when capitalists are sending thugs into your house to abduct you publicly yeah. you're probably doing something right yeah you're pissing off the right people yeah so and again 
I think this is an important story to tell now, especially, I don't know, I hope you guys have some younger listeners, maybe one of them, you know, worms their way into being a labor leader at some point. And remember this fucking story, okay? Walter Ruther got his way. He got to try this strategy, the kind of strategy you hear from our less radical comrades. And uh, we're going to get a chance to see, okay, did it work? Mm, Mixed results. So that's the point of the study. Let's kind of try and learn from this and say, hey, should we play the game by maybe different rules this next time? It's a very important lesson on the inherent failures of reformism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I said that sarcastically as a joke and then immediately realized I was dead nuts correct. Yeah, dude. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> threw me off there. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> Wrong tone. Again, as my union is currently fighting for the 12-hour workday. Yeah. Really got a shit contract there. Eh, we're probably going to reject it. I hope so. <laughs> but, but that being said, the, the contract we just offered did not limit the workday to 12 hours. It limited the workday to 15. Yeah. Bullshit. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Thanks, Walter. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So anyway, back into the middle of this kidnapping story we're in. Or excuse me, the kidnapping already happened. The guys were put on trial. And so facing a jury packed with Ford sympathizers, the defense argued that Walter had staged the whole event as a publicity stunt. The state prosecutor, of course, neglected to mention that Ruther's organizing activities had made him a target at Ford, and, um, oh, you know, just so happened that both of the accused had uh, recently been working for Ford's security chief, our favorite villain, <laughs> Harry Bennett. Yep. I saw that coming, dude. I knew it had to be the case. I mean, you know, they just didn't think that was important information for this uh, trial in the American legal system. So the a jury acquitted both the men. Because Walter Christ, was just making dude. it up. Wow. Yeah. Also, how dumb are these fucking guys that, like, they did break into, like, while he's having a party? It's like, yeah. dude. Could dude. you get more witnesses if you tried? <laughs> but then it still didn't matter because they didn't get acquitted. Like, you know, that's just how totalitarian capitalism is. Oh, I like that. Yeah, we got to start pushing that more. Totalitarian capitalism. I'm, I'm sick of hearing about totalitarianism, this and the, oh, yeah, 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 your system. That's your system. Shut up. So yeah, the trial was a joke, which I can't imagine sitting through that. And like, if you're Walter and his family, could you imagine how insane you would feel and how fucking gaslit? It's just like, they're like, oh, no, 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 that didn't happen. Yeah. So pretty, pretty fucking bad. Pretty terrifying. Of course, Walter didn't just make enemies outside the UAW. He managed to have quite a few adversarial relationships within the UAW, most notably with the far left contingent. So the communists. At a convention in 1938, Richard Frankenstein tried to, quote-unquote, take advantage of the power vacuum created by the ouster of Homer Martin. And he was our favorite socialist, Christian, kind of maniac guy who might have been on the payroll of Harry Bennett in some way. Mm -hmm. He was kind of losing his mind a little bit. Yeah, that guy. Frankenstein, allied with the left faction made up of a lot of communists and other further left folks, he called for a 10-minute recess to work up a deal with the left faction. Now, I'm going to be quoting Walter here, um, yeah, and I would okay. just... Can we, can we address the absurdity that you are going to reconcile a group of leftists in 10 minutes? 
<laughs> Hold my beer. I was just gonna God. let him try. Let's let's. I'm just yeah. I want to sit back. And well, see dude, he gets no. ten minutes with a bunch of leftists, and there are now more factions than there were when he walked into the room. Like <laughs> guaranteed. Uh, yeah, and, and, becomes an egoist, and it's just all done. Well, apparently yeah. Frankenstein isn't considered. He allied with the communists. He wasn't one of the communists himself, I guess. So even more shocking that they worked out a deal of some sort. Now, this next part, I'm going to preface and say, I'm going to say this with authority, even though I don't have any actual evidence, but I'm going to go ahead and say this next part very much did not happen. At least not the way Walter Ruther says it happened. I guarantee it. I would bet my life that this did not fucking happen. Um, what's that one uh, Facebook tag group? This so didn't happen, it unhappened things that had happened. <laughs> I've never heard of that, but that's great. Dude, I love Facebook tag groups. I'm really not using Facebook much these days, but the tag groups are solid. I don't even know what that means. Oh, that's great. Cool. I just want to say, like, I'm over here cracking up. Speaking of Facebook groups, there's this Facebook group that I have an absolute blast in called Ultras vs. Tankies. And oh, it's yeah, buddy. so much it's so much fun. It's literally just a bunch of ultras and tankies that just like get into flame wars. And I posted a poll on there. Yeah, I just posted a poll and said, what should we spend this month's excess labor value on? And made it an open poll for people to just put in their things. And number <laughs> number one is currently a second community toothbrush. Number two is to is toothpaste for the community toothbrush. Number three is bribe the clouds. Number four is sex with Stalin. Sex with Stalin DLC for Khrushchev handy. <laughs> it's a extra okay. large, extra large stuffed crust creature on pizza, armchair oil, hookers and blow, a bigger one, a bigger one bed later bedtime, and mom shut up. <laughs> it's just hilarious. All right. I'll just be cracking up, especially over the uh, toothpaste for the community toothbrush. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So some of those groups are a lot of fun. To be had. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was gonna so, ask if this was like serious like debate or if this was all in good fun, and I feel like you've answered my question. Yeah. <laughs> it's about twenty percent serious. I do like that we have better jokes about ourselves than the righties do. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, it's not even close. I mean, again, you can only debate with other leftists because anyone else, you're like, oh, I'm gonna have to catch you up on hundreds of years of debate for you to get any of my fucking jokes. Or they're just not What's operating in reality, like. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm talking about liberals, not even not even conservatives. Those again, not even the same reality. <laughs> I've been very clear about my mental illness preventing me from operating in reality, and I'm still way more fucking grounded than liberals. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So anyway, back to this. I'm quoting Walter now. Uh, and again, I am perfectly comfortable saying this super did not happen. But here's his quote. Frankenstein and all the top commies gathered to the back of the hall, and I went up to them and I asked, what are you bastards doing? And, and I didn't catch the name quite right here, but uh, I guess, and Kleinstone, I don't know, maybe, um, and Kleinstone said to me in front of all these guys, if the day comes when the party and interests require us to destroy the UAW, then we'll destroy the UAW. And I said, hey. brother... <laughs> but all that and and i said brother count me on the other side of every fight and i won't stop until we drive you bastards out of this union so 
little adversarial. A little bit. Uh, I guarantee you this conversation did not happen. Okay. I was there was say, no it sounds very much like every conversation you have with some employee after they got reprimanded by their manager and they tell you how it went versus how the manager tells you how it went. Oh yeah. And they're two <laughs> entirely different stories. Like, yes. yeah, I told that manager, fuck off. I'm not doing that stupid shit anymore. I don't care how many times you wrote me up. I don't need this fucking job. And you talk to the manager. He's like, yeah, he was very apologetic. I, uh, you know, yeah. he's not, he's going to do better. <laughs> yeah. And then of course, this... like I've been, I'm trying to be fair with with Walter Ruther because I don't agree with everything he did here. But like, this is obviously the kind of story where like, not only did it not happen, you're just trying to impress people by explaining what a piece of shit you think you should have been. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like he's bragging about being on the wrong side of this argument, like really aggressively. Yeah. Oh, and and it's and here's the other thing. This sounds to me like the same every. It's it's amazing. Anytime I talk to a conservative, it's it's uncanny. Their parents or grandparents always grew up in Russia, Cuba, China. It's in, it's uncanny. Again, every conservative. And they hated it. Yeah, every single conservative. And you're just like, nah, that did not happen. And this is one of those times. The whole idea that if the day comes when the party interests require us to destroy the UAW, uh, no one said that. No one meant that. Why would that ever come up? Yeah. It's just... It's a good take, but there's no reason to bring it up. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's just this Walter and Victor uh, were both plagued by uh, this idea. And you can see it in other people they've interviewed from these early UAW days. Anyone who wasn't on the communist side, which is everybody in all these documentaries, basically, they all talk about, oh, how the communists were automatons almost they were slaves to the party line they always listened to the party they didn't think for themselves these same tropes that we've seen a hundred bajillion times yeah Yo, and well, again, maybe it's not a trope maybe it's really easy to stick with the party line when the party line is like support fucking workers yeah well yes and, and so there is like a certain amount of support hey sometimes you're like okay hey i don't agree with everything but this is what the party wants to do i'm with it there is a big difference between that and how people portray it. And they were plagued by this idea that that's all these communists were. And it's insane to me that it's like, you guys like interacted with them regularly. Like yeah. uh, I've never met a communist like that. Okay. And I, I'm an anarchist myself, but like I have never met anyone who is just like a robot. Oh, I must do what the party like. That's crazy. Uh, Mike either has something to say, or he is saying that he's that guy. Um, well, yes, I am that guy, but that's what this whole podcast is about, is being that guy. You're supposed to robotically follow Marxism as a doctrine. That's the whole idea. But my defense of that would be that, like, if somebody is following literally the guidebook that Marx and whoever else since him laid out for how to actually win workers' rights and win material gains for proletariat, good. Fucking follow that handbook, and if that's what the handbook tells you to do, and that's what the party is telling you to do because they're interpreting the handbook, then fucking do it. And if the only criticism is like a bunch of fucking soyjacks telling you, oh, you're just doing what your historically successful pattern of overthrowing capitalism, you're just doing what that says to do. It's like, yeah, motherfucker, I'm going to continue to do that. And you're <laughs> following a fucking pattern yourself. Like You're literally on the rails of capitalism without realizing it. Like you're just doing whatever profit is telling you to do. You're doing whatever your shareholders tell you to do. It's like an NPC calling somebody else an NPC. It's like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah. A good take, but like you can tell that what his actual meaning is is that like they were bland people with like just really uninteresting like they didn't have any conversation skill like whatever like what makes a person boring like 
And no, I don't believe that because 100% all the communists I know are like the most off the rails, like wild, like fucking people. Because yeah. like it's it's impossible to be a communist in this system and not be losing your fucking mind at all times. Yeah. yeah. And it's again, it's incredible that like, Walter, who was not a, he was not a dumb guy, all right? He does not belong in the same category as, like, oh, dumb liberals or whatever. Okay, this is a guy who is actually quite smart and is putting workers first, maybe not the same way I would or whatever, but, like, he's fighting the good fight. And to think that he encounters these people and this is what he thinks of them is just, like, I genuinely cannot make sense of it. Like, yeah. there is... I can. Can you? It sounds like, genuinely, if I'm not just being a piece of shit about this, it sounds like the sort of rhetoric that you use to impress the moderates and right-wingers. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the only thing that that story is, is like... I'll beat the socialist, Jack. Well, which I think this, and I don't want to get, like, too into the weeds on this, but, like, I do think there is a real thing we have to consider when it comes to labor organizing specifically is this idea that... Well, you got to cover everybody, right? There's right-wingers in the union. There's people who yeah. might, like, again, there's not much political education, especially nowadays, you know? Should we be representing people like this in, like, unions? Is there a way around that? It's just, should we be appeasing moderates and conservatives while we're winning them fucking rights that they're going to vote away anyway? Yeah. Now, I get the idea that, like, hey, you're going to get them on their side. You're going to give them some class consciousness, through this struggle, but history seems to suggest that that doesn't always work. And so I think we have to really reckon, I don't think we're going to do it on this podcast, but we have to really think long and hard about how do we do that? How do we have that big tent and deal with fucking ass wipes in your union who are racist, sexist, homophobic, you know, outright fascists in some case who are in your union? Like, how do you, what do you do about that? And I don't know the answer, but I'm hoping that someone listens to this and thinks thinks of a solution and puts it forth. I don't know, but it's a real problem. Yeah, I mean, you want to ideally just drag the reactionaries kicking and screaming into a better world and then have them converted because of that, but it just doesn't always work. And I mean, if you're not living in 2021 and seeing the extent to which people can literally deny the reality that is in front of their faces, like, this should be a lesson for you. Yeah. So on that note, listeners, you got some homework, I guess. I don't know. Figure this one out yeah. for us, please. <laughs> um, so anyway, that whole exchange definitely did not happen. Um, but Walter recounts it gleefully. He loves that this was a thing. Uh, jumping back in here, during the Second World War, uh, many of the unions, including the UAW, sort of voluntarily agreed not to go on strike in fear that it could harm the war effort. And probably a little bit more importantly, it could look bad to the public. So at the time, of course, there was rationing. The auto industry actually converted to making planes and tanks and shit. So striking at that time, you know, a lot of what unions are doing is relying on public support for what they're doing. And if you fuck with that, it can hurt you pretty bad. So well, the CPUSA party line during World War II was like, let's kick the fucking Nazis ass which is good. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, at the time, I mean, Walter made this like ambitious pledge to like, oh, no, no, let's get the auto industry to making 500 planes a day or something. Everybody called them crazy or whatever. And I don't know, they fucking did it. So 
he was in the news for that and like calling for, hey, no, we can actually do this because everyone was like, oh, is it feasible? How are we going to make all this shit? And he was kind of putting forth, oh, we, no, it can be done. No, if you mm-hmm. force these car companies to do it, we'll just retool the machines. It'll work. And so he was right about that. So for what that's worth. It's as if top-down organization and planned economies can work when you just apply the political will to them. Yeah. But I'm, how I'm will we know what to make without supply and demand? <laughs> <laughs> I am all for planned economies. I think they seem to work very well and for fairly obvious reasons, but I digress. So anyway, most unions were not being too militant at the time. Of course, there was sort of an unspoken agreement that we do this for you, and after all this shit's over, we're going to be rewarded, is the idea. Seems um, legit. So, Capitalists are usually prone to rewarding hard work. Yeah, <laughs> Famously. So most of the union members in these unions actually did seem to support this kind of temporary policy as well. Uh, of course, when the war was over, workers felt like it was time to get what they were owed. So between the end of the war and through 1946, nearly 5 million workers were involved in some kind of uh, strike action. So this was like, it's, you know, the strike wave, the post-World War II strike wave, which scared capital, as you can imagine. So the UAW struck uh, at GM for 113 days. I, you know what, I, I come back to it in a minute. So we'll come back to this, but this is a pretty important strike in the way that Walter was putting forward the demands of the union. So one of the things that, Walter was saying was, hey, let's do, I think, a 30% increase in wages. Um, and one of the things he suggested was making GM not raise the price of cars. So yeah. you give the workers a better deal, but you don't increase the price of cars. This was a way to handle that sort of inflationary effect, which is usually minimal, but it does happen, right? So you mm-hmm. pay workers more, the costs go up. Well, if the capitalist wants to maintain the same profit margin, which they shouldn't always do that, but if they do, they may have to raise prices. May, of course, it's not guaranteed, but Brandon, go ahead. That's so fucking much because for any of my criticisms of, of Walter Ruther, that is explicitly like, no, we want your profits. You don't make the customers pay for this. We want the money that you're hoarding. That's mm-hmm. sick. I love yeah. that. And so, again, of all the criticisms we can have for Walter, there was a lot he got right. And he was very close to getting the right point. I mean, no denying that. So we're going to come back to this in a little bit. But this is a noteworthy demand. Probably the first time in like labor history this is happening. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's significant. And we should think about this in our own current situation a little bit. Anyway, so November 1945, demanding a greater voice in management, uh, GM would pay higher wages but refused to consider power sharing, so more essentially democracy at work. The union finally settled with an 18.5 cent wage increase, but little more. The UAW went along with GM in return for an ever-increasing packages of wage and benefit hikes through collective bargaining uh, with no help from the government. So. The idea was, all right, we're going to concede a little bit, but there will be increasing benefits over time. You know, again, a 113-day strike, how much longer can a union really hold out? It gets tough at that point. So we have to acknowledge the realities that we're not going to win every battle. That's why it's a struggle, because sometimes you fucking lose. I refuse Um, to acknowledge that reality. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, so 
the forces of capital did not appreciate the new labor militancy. And so that's going to bring us into a discussion of the Taft-Hartley Act, which is landmark legislation at the time, and it fucked pretty much everything up. So the world we're living in today is thanks to the Taft-Hartley Act and thanks in part to the way unions dealt with the Taft-Hartley Act. Um, so we'll kind of see that going forward here, too. Yeah, refer back to our episode with the IWW comrades. I don't know the the number off the top of my head, but we talked a lot about the Taft-Hartley Act and how that kind of set the stage for where we've been at for the last almost 100 years at this point. So, Yeah. Now, I am going to quickly reiterate again for any listeners who might not be aware of it. We all talk about the Taft-Hartley Act and we reference it all the time. Oh, the Taft-Hartley Act sucked. It was awful. But what is it? How did it come about? You know, what was the deal with, with the whole Taft-Hartley Act? And that's kind of what I'm going to talk about here for a minute. So the Labor Management Relations Act of 1947, better known as the Taft-Hartley Act, is a United States federal law that restricts the activities and power of labor unions. It was enacted, and this is important, it was enacted over the veto of President Harry S. Truman, uh, becoming law on June 23, 1947. So it's pretty rare that a law is like not signed by a president and then gets overruled by the Congress. Mm -hmm. But that's what happened here. So, yeah, forces of capital are fucking strong. Yeah. Um, so this was overridden in the House 331 to 83. So it had even more support than the initial passing of the bill when it was overridden. And then in the Senate, it was 68 to 25. So that is a fucking overwhelming passage. And, you know, we can all say, you know, oh, there, it was this, it was that. But at the end of the day, the politicians here were very much in the pockets of the capitalists. That's who they were serving. It was very blatant. It was way less hidden than it is today. And it's pretty blatant today, but like, this was disastrous. Now, Taft-Hartley was introduced in the aftermath of a major strike wave in 1945 and 1946, like we just talked about. Though it was enacted by uh, the Republican-controlled 80th Congress, the law received significant support from congressional Democrats, so roughly about 50% uh, of Democrats at the time, many of whom joined with their Republican colleagues in voting to override Truman's veto. The act continued to generate opposition after Truman left office, but it remains in effect. The Taft-Hartley Act amended the 1935 National Labor Relations Act, which we talked about before, prohibiting unions from engaging in several quote-unquote unfair labor practices. Mm. Uh, among the practices prohibited by the Taft-Hartley Act are jurisdictional strikes, wildcat strikes, solidarity and political strikes, secondary boycotts, secondary and mass picketing, closed shops, and monetary donations by unions to federal political campaigns. So this is coming from like Wikipedia. So take a grain with salt here. And some of these terms, I think get a little bit mixed up, but I wanted to go through quickly what these actual restrictions mean and like mm -hmm. what these things that are being limited are. Uh, so a jurisdictional strike is a concerted refusal to work undertaken by a union to assert its members right to a particular job assignment and to protest the assignment of disputed work to members of another union or to unorganized workers. So this is like when the union is our responsibility is to take care of this. And when you take that job away and you give it to, say, the unorganized workers in the plant or, say, a different union that is more maybe amenable to capital. Right. So when you take away this job, you mispronounce corrupt. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, so basically this is where a company says, oh, you're too fucking difficult to deal with. So we're going to give this responsibility to this other group of workers and a union in response may go on strike. And the Taft-Hartley Act actually makes that illegal to do this. So companies can kind of just take away responsibilities whenever they want. You said this actually had the blessing of Truman? No, no. So actually, so Truman vetoed this, and it was overridden by a huge margin, which rarely happens. So actually, Truman gets some credit on this. He and he, he, I like. There's video of him being like, "Yo, this is appalling legislation. Like, this is fucking crazy." And yeah, yeah, they overrode it. But let's go drop this bomb on Japan real quick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like let's 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 not pat Truman on the back too hard as he fucking flattens yeah. Nagasaki. Yeah, okay, yeah. fair enough. No, I don't want to talk too much out of my ass right now. But didn't didn't a judge in one of the places where uh, John Deere is currently picketing rule that they're like we're only allowed to have like so many picketers on the line, and it was like an abysmally small amount relative to like what it could be. Yes. And that's actually one of the things that the Taft-Hartley Act does um, go after as well Is like they kind of restrict who can picket and how much picketing can be done, because, of course, it looks bad when you have a fuckload of people picketing your company's labor practices. It looks really bad. So limiting the, the amount of that that can be done, huge win for companies. So that thing that strikers were having to deal with last week was also a thing that they were having to deal with 80 years ago. Yes. Yes. Now I'm Thank not. A, I'm not a legal it. expert. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> Thanks, Walter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So the, the Taft-Hartley Act is alive and well, and it is still a huge problem for us. Now, one of the other things it makes "quote unquote" illegal is a wildcat strike. A wildcat strike is a strike action undertaken by unionized workers without union leadership's authorization. Right. So there wasn't an authorization vote. It's not official but workers go on strike anyway. It's technically illegal, but like what that really means in like in reality is workers do not have the kinds of protections they have from going on strike normally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they can be fired, a lot more they can lose pay, they they're not eligible to take from the strike fund of the union, things like that. So it's way riskier and has real consequences. I love it. It's saying that the absolute most democratic form of strike is illegal. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that, yeah. that was kind of, we had done an episode with some um, IWW chapter heads several months back now, and that was kind of their big argument of like the IWW versus your traditional unions is they're not restricted to those same laws because, the, you know, they're, they're not like the same, I guess, uh, technical union, like, like these larger ones, so they can pretty much do whatever they want. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I mean, I know they, they've kind of got like, they've got a dual membership kind of thing too yeah. going where it's like, mm-hmm. which I think is hugely important. And we should yeah. think about stuff like that. Like mm-hmm. we'll get to later, I think in the next episode, when we talk about the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement, there could be some mix of like more radical unions, but like being a member of say one union, that's a big union, but also being a member of a more revolutionary union too. That's, that could be something that we look towards in the 21st century, I think. Yeah. And that's the, like, that's one of their biggest like arguments is literally like they refuse to get rid of the most powerful tool that the unions actually have. 
Yeah. So one of the other things um, this goes into is what they're calling solidarity action, also known as secondary action, a secondary boycott, or a sympathy strike. A lot of fucking terms they're mixing up here, whatever. This is essentially like where union members actually strike on behalf of someone else who is aggrieved. Uh, this is an industrial action by a trade union in support of a strike initiated by workers in a separate corporation, but often the same enterprise, group of companies, or a connected firm. So in Australia, Latvia, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, and the United States and UK, solidarity action is illegal, uh, and strikes can only be against the contractual employer. Germany, Italy, and Spain have restrictions in place that restrict the circumstances in which solidarity action can take place. The term secondary action is often used with different with the intention of distinguishing different types of trade dispute with a worker's direct contractual employer. So thus, a secondary action is a dispute with the employer's parent company, its suppliers, financers, contracting parties, or any other employer in another industry. Wait, so that did, you say, did you say Germany, Italy, and Spain? Yes. Okay, yes. <laughs> so, so the countries that are like coming down hardest on secondary strikes are the ex-fascists. What the boys are so, back in town. Hold on. Well, hold on. So <laughs> the gang like, is back are, together. You're you miss you misheard that. They are technically less restrictive. So oh my. Uh, Germany okay. and Spain have restrictions in place that restrict the circumstances in which these strikes can happen. But the much longer list of countries, including the U.S. and the U.K., uh, it's just straight up illegal. You can't do it. So, ah, they learned a valuable lesson on optics. Can, uh, I, can I just say, Connor, it's like really yeah. rude of you to like shit on Brandon's really good joke with your facts. Like it was, <laughs> that's a great joke. You just like dumped on it with your your reality. It's... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just got like all these notes and shit, and I'm just like, wait, no, hold on. It's got to be this. <laughs> no, but like... I'm laser focused here. The, the real joke is actually buried in there, though, and it's not as laugh out loud funny because a lot of the fascist countries actually learned a genuine lesson about taking care of their people a little bit because otherwise, like, if, if you let things get too bad, you fall to communism or fascism. And if you want to maintain a nice, moderate capitalist democracy, quote unquote democracy, then you got to keep the people like fed and somewhat happy and and give them the illusion of control. And uh, so they learned that lesson and we're like, you know, we're, we're going to let you guys have this one. Just don't get too uppity about it. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Well, and so when we're thinking about like secondary actions like this, this means Brandon, other unions. Brandon critically supporting fascists, by the way. hundred <laughs> percent <laughs> not. Nope. <laughs> um, so like secondary actions like this are incredibly important. So like, let's say you're in a smaller union and, you know, you're, you're fighting against this company. It's not a big fucking deal to them. But if you can start shutting down other parts of the of industry, right, whether they're completely different or uh, maybe the same company or whatever, you start to really hurt them. And of course, that's why it's illegal now. Well, what I found actually most striking about this uh, provision in the law is that it makes it so that you can only strike against the contractual employer, right? So when your company, say, I don't know, Procter & Gamble, owns 50 different fucking subsidiaries, you cannot strike against Procter & Gamble or any of the other subsidiaries. You can only go after whatever that little Colgate toothpaste 
It's it, it's like ah yes, the communal toothpaste. <laughs> Back it's to very that. much like the recent thing. I think it was Johnson and Johnson who had been sued for putting asbestos in their fucking talcum powder that you know people were using yep. all the time, like on babies and shit. And what they did was they legally shifted the responsibility to a subsidiary company and then like defunded it or closed it up. They basically just like shuffled some documents and now they're absolved. They just got away with it. They got away with the scot free no problem. That's, I mean, that's what limited liability um, is in the limited liability corporation. It's that kind of move. And it's this idea that like I get from people who defending capitalism all the time. Oh, well, the owner took all the risk and did, did, there's no risk. Yeah. Literally none. A limited liability corporation means they cannot be held personally responsible. So they can't go to jail. They can't go to whatever because of the corporation's actions. And when you have all these little subsidiaries, you, again, they're shirking the responsibility off of themselves. And so there is no risk, mm-hmm. not to the company, not to the individuals running the company, but the workers. The workers take a great deal of risk. They risk. But what about like that capitalist, like putting all of their own parents' money into that business? That's just basic economics right there. Well, it's also basic economics, of course, when they get to just borrow that money, right? So instead of putting (laughs) your parents' money, you put that money in the stock market and then you leverage it for a loan, right? And then you're borrowing money at a low interest rate to fund that company. So poor people, what are you doing? Just try harder. Then you short that company because you know what's coming. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a wonderful system we live in. Actually, how, um, C- Connor, I have an on-topic and serious question while we're talking about Taft-Hartley. Sure. I-, I love to pretend that I know more than I do, but I-, I can't do that here. I don't know a whole lot about Taft-Hartley. And I feel like a couple of episodes ago, you said something about how like it wasn't entirely Walter Ruther's fault that a lot of the communists got run out of the UAW because it has something to do with the Taft-Hartley Act. Did I misunderstand yes. you then, or are we you getting into not. that? So we're heading into that right now. I'm, I'm just kind of going through some of these, like, oh, it bans all this stuff, but like, oh, what is this stuff that it fucking bans? But I want to be clear. We're going to go into the purging of the communists and Walter is both responsible and not responsible for it. I mean, it's literally like, it's very complicated, but Walter used the Taft-Hartley Act to his advantage to get rid of his adversaries in the union. However, by the letter of the law, he was protecting the union too. So it's really like, we'll get into it, but it's fucked up. (laughs) Um, So again, one of the other things that it, it bans is mass picketing and stuff. So it's a form of protest where people called pickets or picketers congregate outside a place of work or a location where an event is taking place. Often this is done in an attempt to dissuade others from going in, so convincing people not to cross the picket line, but also to draw public attention to the cause. So the Taft-Hartley Act limits like who can picket. So like you can't just like call for like, oh, hey, members of all these other unions come show solidarity with us and picket with us. So like instead of having... 30 people picketing, maybe we can have 2,000. The Taft-Hartley Act makes that illegal. Again, favoring companies. It's uncanny, really, how, how much this favors companies, and the workers get nothing from this legislation that, again, was overrode a fucking veto. It was yeah. so goddamn popular in the House and Senate, and it gave nothing to workers. In fact, it hurt them entirely. It, it's yeah. truly amazing. So... The other thing is, 
The NLRA also allowed states to enact right-to-work laws banning union shops. And a union shop is basically where any new employee has to be in the union. So that's a union shop. And then there's the closed shop. So the closed shop is where everyone has to be in the union after a certain amount of time. Now, I'm sure there's some like real legal distinction there, but it seemed pretty close to the same damn thing to me. But right-to-work laws, of course, and this is where they come from. It's the Taft-Hartley Act. The right-to-work laws mean that these workers can choose not to be in the union or can choose, if they have to be in the union, they can choose not to pay dues or whatever if the state enacts a right-to-work law. So enacted in the, during the early stages of the Cold War, the law required union officers... Oh, this is the part uh, about the communists. So the law also required union officers to sign non-communist affidavits with the government. So like... The law made it illegal for communists to hold leadership positions in unions. Whole cloth. That was in the law. Now, of course, we supposedly have some kind of constitution that's supposed to make stuff like that blatantly not allowed, but uh, of course, passed anyway. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) And this is the part that I was talking about. So technically, in order to save the unions, they, they couldn't have communists in them at all. And they had to sign affidavits affirming that they were in fact not communists now i would argue that there is some way to deal with that that is not what actually happened but we'll let's go a little deeper here so this part of the law was struck down by the supreme court in 1965 and i this is me postulating here but this could have been challenged much much earlier in the warren court so the warren court is largely considered the most liberal Supreme Court in U.S. history. Um, So the Warren Court was the one that gave us pretty much every reasonable law, civil rights legislation, all of that. This is the Supreme Court that upheld all of that and struck down all kinds of really awful fucking shit. It's not like something that is beyond praiseworthy, like, oh, so praiseworthy. It's still a capitalist institution, but like this was... This is like the New Deal of the Supreme Court, if you want to think about it like that. As you were saying that, I'm just picturing that Monty Python image with with him sitting there looking up saying, ah, a gift from the gods. (laughs) I was trying to think of some kind of Elizabeth Warren joke. I wanted to know, like, who was was Judge Warren that was so, I don't know, cool that, like, we got some stuff actually done in the Supreme Court at that point. Okay, so this was Chief Justice... I'm just sitting here Her- thinking that if they told me I couldn't be a communist, I'd be like, cool, suddenly I'm an authoritarian anarchist. I know. <laughs> well, and, and that's kind of my point, is like, okay, I'm not a communist now. I'm a communalist. Or, or whatever the fuck, who cares? You could call yourself a fucking polka-dotted pony for all I care. Yeah. I'm a non-denominational Marxist. There you go. So that wasn't done. And of course, that is to Walter's benefit. or. I don't even want to say his benefit, his perceived benefit. So anyway, this was the Supreme Court led by Chief Justice Earl Warren, uh, the most, quote, liberal court in history. And this was from 1953 to 1969. So remember when I said this could have been challenged much earlier, as we can see, like even today, we know like we're currently we're in a very conservative Supreme Court. Like, you know, ahead of time. All right. Let's let's not pretend that they're not partisan hacks. That's what these fucking justices are. It is a political fucking game. Um, I mean, it's a political you, institution. For historical context, when you say this could have been challenged a lot earlier, 
the early side of that is like when we were straight up trying communists in the House Un-American Activities Committee and shit like. Yeah. The 50s were not a friendly time towards anyone left-leaning and No, of course not. I'm wholly unsurprised that it did not go challenged in that time. Well, but here here's the thing. Had this gone in front of the Supreme Court, again, I'm not a legal expert, but I actually suspect that not only this provision but several others of the Taft-Hartley Act could have been struck down. On their face, they are blatantly unconstitutional. Like you just look at them and you're like how the fuck did you make secondary strikes illegal? But that's what I'm saying. Like nothing about the the HUAC era of America was concerned about the Constitution. It's that thing where you yell about the Constitution while you do wildly like hypocritical shit. Well, that's that's every era of of, of America. Yeah. Like that is 100. percent But like the <laughs> Warren Court actually. I won't argue might, that point. Yeah. <laughs> but if there was any time that this could have been struck down, it was during this time, very clearly, and it's not even close. Like. The Warren court had the incentive, right, to throw this out, and they had the means to get rid of this. They very easily could have. Again, maybe maybe there's some legal expert listening who would tell me I'm wrong, uh, and that's very possible. But that is my belief on it from what I at least know, the very little I do know about the Warren court. Now, if the labor leaders of the time, uh, like Walter, wanted to bring a case, uh, I think they could have. And of course... Walter definitely did not want communists in the union, right? So we've already established that. So he used this to his advantage to purge communists from the union. Now, I raised the question, you know, what other parts of the law could have been struck down? Again, it's honestly hard for me to imagine what parts could have stood up to scrutiny under this particular Supreme Court. How do you make picketing illegal? If supporters wanted to go and picket, how could you possibly make that illegal? It's absurd. Vagrancy laws. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you name it, they'll find a way. But this is probably the one time in history where this would not have stood up. And they did not take that opportunity. And so now we are still stuck living with this law. And for that, I'm, I'm going to unfortunately have to say thanks, Walter. Because, yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that I think this is one of his biggest mistakes. Now... I also want to note, like, again, we could have found some smart ass way to dodge this, like signing non-communist affidavits and like people calling themselves anything else. Like there is, it's just your fucking word on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. There was a way to resist this. And there was probably a way to resist this nonsense in a way that actually helped the union look better in the public eye. And just none of it was seized upon. None of it. And so this was huge loss and this hurts us you'll see the damage this does as we go forward but it hurt us then and it hurts us now we can't let our personal political ambitions get in the way of like really harmful shit uh and and that's kind of what happened here Sirwin, what's up i agree but i also don't want to diminish the value of how much it took for some of these people to take their stance and refuse to like give up their communist affiliation like there there's some honor in that is it worth the outcome i don't think so but to be, uh, no, to be okay to be fair I, I i would like to point out i'm sure some of them actually would have done that but uh, remember walter wanted them out of the fucking union so like yeah. you know he was up in leadership they were going to be gone at some point even if they did renounce their whatever with walter wielding power here there is a good chance that they could have been kicked out anyway yeah, uh, but again, yeah. credit to them if they didn't. And 
whatever that says, I mean, these were hard times for yeah. sure. And they can, I mean, they it's always been hard to be a communist here, but yeah, I mean, they couldn't see the future. It, it sucks. It yeah. played out the way it did, but I, I still think that there's honor and kind of holding your ground like that. No, absolutely. I, I, no, I think as, as much as we're discussing right now, like how you would just say, well, actually I'm, I'm not a communist. I'm this other thing in my heart of heart. I know that I would lose my job that day. like sure could i do this thing yes but would i also see that piece of paper and just become irate and say fuck (laughs) you you can't tell me what i can be right that's that's the day i get escorted off the property by fucking pinkertons or some shit I will cause 80 years of political backtracking today motherfucker I, like I actually think that the the like the twenties into the like early fifties is like a wildly fascinating time in the history yeah. of American communism. They, they weren't really like tanky as the way that you would think of them now, but those motherfuckers did not back down, man. They took their beatings and kept on organizing and kept fighting. Yeah, and like yeah, when what I know about the party at that time, fuck no, none of them were gonna sign that shit. All right, well that's fair. Yeah, I mean it was just. It was a bad time. So, all right, before joining the Democratic Party, which is not a great, not a great sentence, uh, before joining the Democratic Party, Ruther was a member of the Socialist Party of America, one of the several socialist-ish parties. Um, although Ruther always denied it, some, including J. Edgar Hoover, one of our other favorite villains, have suspected that at one time he was a member of the Communist Party. On this subject, Ruther said in 1938, I am not and never have been a member of the Communist Party, nor a supporter of its policies, nor subject to its control or influence in any way. Did this earn him any friends? Nope. No, it did not. <laughs> also, like, so, like, there's no speculating whether or not somebody was or was not a communist in that era. The FBI had that shit on lock. There is thorough documentation on every communist mm-hmm. of import. Like, if you attended well, a meeting, it was known. Well, and that's the thing. So, I mean, he was a socialist. So, I mean, by the, on that list, he had a file. And J. Edgar Hoover personally thought that Walter was a communist or socialist, whatever, the same fucking thing. To, to reactionaries, they're all the same. So, yeah. uh, I, I'm just like, I'm just saying that like anybody in power saying like, well, I think he's a communist. It only has the capacity to be a bad faith argument. Like, oh, yeah. I've, I've read some of the documents I've been reading, um, shit, I forget the name of the book now, the FBI and the, the folk singers or something. And oh, I like, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, they go in depth, uh, like, because specifically Woody Guthrie is, is a, a good person to know because the FBI had detailed files on Woody Guthrie having attended meetings, but having never formally held membership in the communist party and the reasons why he supported the party and the reasons why he had never been a member Funny enough, it was because they didn't want him. Yeah, so, like, the FBI was thoroughly documenting, like, every fucking communist of note in America, if not every communist, period. Like, it was the yeah. 30s and 40s, so it was, it was a harder thing to keep tabs on every single living soul. But, like, they did the footwork to do that. If Ruther had ever been a communist, if he had gone to a fucking meeting where he had walked outside and said like, well, you know, some of those ideas are pretty all right or whatever. They would know that inside and out, upside down. Yeah. 
So it is only in, in bad faith that somebody would levy the argument against him that he not that, you know, anybody in the government is beyond making a bad faith argument if it means like, well, crushing an opponent. But still, I mean, so it was at the time it was bad faith always, because even for actual self-proclaimed communists, it was still a, an insult lobbed at them. Oh, they're a communist, you know. So this was a common thing at the time. And Walter used that himself. You know, he called his opponents communists and scaremongered about them. And that was to have them lose influence within the union. He was part of the anti-communist kind of fervor at the time. Now, after the CIO elections in 1948, the CIO purged 11 radical unions. Walter even pushed for the decertification of these unions, such as the Farm Equipment Workers Union in Peoria, Illinois, which had organized the Caterpillar plants. So he directly had a part to play in like he was pushing for decertification of other unions within the CIO. So again, he was very against the communists and he he destroyed a lot of union power because of that anti-communism. Now, to you just made me cool off on Walter Ruther even more, but you made me really curious about 11 radical unions. Well, remember, <laughs> the so, whole ass union was too radical to stay on board. Well, so remember, this was um, the CIO, and the CIO was the more radical of the union federations. Of course, the alternative was the American Federation of Labor, and they were right wing by comparison to the CIO, and they were right wing by comparison to the UAW. I mean, by a lot. Um, that's, that's what I'm saying, though. Like, if the AFL kicked out 11 unions for being too radical, or wait, did you say it was AFL or CIO? CIO. Okay. So if, if they were the radical Congress of unions, then they still kicked out 11 for being too radical. Yes. And that rules. And I don't want to know more about those 11 unions now. <laughs> I know. Yeah, they're... You'd have to do some digging, because, like, I tried to, like, briefly look at it. I was like, all right, this is beyond the scope of what I can get into. But yeah, pretty big, important thing. Now, so let's kind of turn here to internal union stuff. Returning to the uh, post-war GM strike that we talked about, and I said I would get into a little bit more, Ruther proved that he would be a different type of labor leader when he led a strike challenging GM to increase workers' wages by 30% uh, without increasing the price of their new cars. Worker pay had been restricted during the World War II, and Ruther sought to get them a raise, but not at the cost of increased inflation. Historically, when workers won a pay increase, the company would pass on the expense to the consumers. Now, a government study at the time found that GM could easily afford this concession, that, you know, this raise could come out of increased productivity alone, right? So they had the profit margin to do this, and they were one of the most profitable companies in the world if not the most. So they did do an actual, like, whatever it was, Congressional Budget Office or Government Account, whatever, one of these fucking offices did the study and found that, oh yeah, GM, not only could they afford it, they could easily afford it. Mm -hmm. So GM, of course, refused the pay increase, and after a 113-day strike, the side settled on an 18.5-cent hourly raise. Ruther's bold collective bargaining leadership in this strike catapulted him into the union's top position. It was kind of a loss kind of a, I mean, but it was, it was an important thing mm -hmm. um, during the strike wave to happen. That's how that went. Uh, on March 27th, 1946, Ruther won the election and became the president of the UAW in a very close race. Um, so he went from like, you know, just being in leadership and on the board to, 
actual president. Um, now, he defeated the incumbent UAW president, R.J. Thomas, who I believe was a communist, by a mere 124 votes out of almost 9,000 votes. So this was a very, very close election. Now, the new UAW president pledged his vision of a labor movement whose philosophy is to fight for the welfare of the public at large. This is undeniably good. Uh, one of his first acts as president was to fight to integrate the... I don't know why this is... Oh, Brandon. I just want to say I long for a fucking world where the socialists marginally went out against the communists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, coming from where we're at right now, that just sounds like a dream. Seriously. Yeah. We got a long way to go, but... Uh, what is that quote from Lenin? There's... Uh, there's years where weeks happen and weeks where years happen or whatever. Uh, something know. like that, yeah. It's yeah. one of my favorite Lenin quotes. There are decades where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. That's yeah. it. That's the one. Yeah. Fingers crossed, right? <laughs> it is starting so, to feel that way. I mean, yeah. Shit's popping off. Now, I don't know why this is the most relevant. I got this from Wikipedia, so, you know, take it for what it is. Um, I have no idea why the American Bowling League has anything to do with the UAW, but for some reason, uh, Walter uh, was fighting to integrate the American Bowling League, which had previously excluded black bowlers. He was a new kind of leader who viewed the labor movement as an instrument for social change. So very important. Walter was, in fact, anti-racist and was fighting for integration and much better, you know, equality for black workers. He Respect. fought for it. But I will say this is not a new type of leader. This is what was just historically a communist leader. Well, again, he wasn't a communist. I know. Um, That's what I'm saying. Like, co-opting the idea that the communists had at the time. <laughs> this um, is not a new type of leader. This has been around for decades. He just relabeled it. Sure. I mean, but at the same time, for the days, credit where credit's due, this was a good thing. There were still problems of racism within the U ranks of the UAW, and... There still are. Well, yes. We'll definitely be talking about that in the future, but um, Walter Ruther was fighting on that front, at least to some extent. Now, after Walter won the top position, the communists in the Union began to fight back. They began a nasty campaign against Walter, as they should, mm -hmm. um, sort of, although we better learn from this, too, because it didn't end well. So they used, you know, the company newspaper and uh, some of the other newspapers locally to argue against Walter's leadership. They called him names like the boss's boy to imply that he was too cozy with company management uh, and wasn't fighting hard enough. This isn't really true, um, although he may have been a little less militant than the communists. I mean, the guy was pretty adversarial with the companies, although, I mean, at the time, maybe wasn't adversarial enough. Right. We always got to push left or whatever. If I recall correctly, and I'm not shit talking here, that was not necessarily true at all at this time, but becomes a lot more true yes. later on. Which is a problem with unions in general, like labor leaders tend to get more conservative over time, partially because of their own power, partially because they have real pressures on them. Like they've got to deliver gains for working people. And sometimes that means they're negotiating, right? You don't always win those negotiations. Yeah. Sometimes you're like, oh, I got to take this shittier deal now to get a better deal later. Whatever it is, however they rationalize it, they tend to want to avert strikes. They tend to take the deal they can get, right? 
So it's, it is a problem of leadership in general um, and, and something that I think needs to be addressed in labor unions in some way or another. Now, it's hard to blame the communists for trying to fight back against Walter, obviously. He deserved it in a lot of ways. But he did have a lot of support from the workers, and he did deliver at the bargaining table. He demonstrated his value in organizing effective strikes. It was kind of the whole point of the last episode. Motherfucker knew what he was doing, okay? And he was good. No doubt about that. So you really couldn't claim that he wasn't down for the cause. And so the attacks coming from the left kind of fell flat because of that. Now, they made communists look bad, and Walter was more than happy to fight back against that. So uh, Walter emerged from this fight victorious. So we'll have the opportunity to kind of examine Walter's long-term strategy and see how we might learn from that in the 21st century labor struggle here. But like, he and the communists had it out. He won this fight. The workers supported Walter's vision. And partly because of Taft-Hartley, the communists were on the losing side here. This was a huge setback for them. And so Walter kind of takes the reins and leads the UAW into uh, the 50s and 60s until his death. What was the quote about this in regards to uh, the blow dealt to the Communist Party in America? This was the greatest, uh, I don't know the quote, but this was the greatest setback for communists in the labor movement in the 20th century. Yeah. So, yeah. This this hurt. And I get it. They attacked Walter, and I'm not saying they were wrong to do that. I don't know what I would have suggested otherwise, but unfortunately, those attacks fell flat. And part of that is because the motherfucker was good at what he was doing. I mean, it's like it's hard to say, like, oh, this guy's a fucking he's in the pockets of the bosses when that's just not. Yeah, it, it, you can look at it and be like, I'm sorry, that's just not true. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> our attacks got to be good, but like, and I've seen this, you know, you see it go to Twitter. You'll know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> it's just, you're like, I'm look, you can attack somebody, but like, you, you can't be like, this person's a sellout when they clearly have not sold out. Right. Yeah. Now winning the presidency in the UAW didn't just make Walter a target for communists within the UAW. Uh, he had far more dangerous enemies in organized crime violent capitalists, and violent elements of the U.S. capitalist government, such as the FBI and the CIA. So, yeah, no winning here. <laughs> that charting that anti-communist path can be not great, because then you've just got more enemies. It's, again, making you no friends. In April 1948, Ruther was nearly killed by a shotgun blast fired through his kitchen window. He suffered chest and arm wounds and never recovered the full use of his right arm and hand. So for the rest of his life, he was fucked up because he got shot with a fucking shotgun. Yeah, just in so, his kitchen, like through his window. Like that was, there's a couple times where this guy got viciously fucking attacked, like in his own home. And it's like, yeah. like you said earlier, you know you're pissing off the right people when you do that. Yeah. And, and so he's got enemies. I, we don't know who did this shooting. Um, this could have been the mob, right? Because they had union shit going on too. This could have been violent capitalists. This could have been anything. But someone tried to kill him. And when you think about what, again, we, we shit on Walter a lot, and I think for good reason, but you got to understand, this guy was putting his life on the line, and like his family was scared. He had bodyguards all the fucking time, and yeah. that wasn't always enough. Shitting on him is good praxis. Like, <laughs> call him out for the good stuff he did, but also call him out for the bad stuff he did. Yeah, it's critical yep. support. Yeah, there you go. And that's, I think that's what this study's about. 
Now, then we come to uh, a year later, Victor, Walter's brother, was also shot at. Victor got it a little bit worse than Walter, unfortunately. An attempt on Victor Ruther's life uh, the following year suggests outright complicity by law enforcers. Big surprise. Victor began receiving calls from the Detroit police telling him that neighbors, whom the police refused to name, were complaining about his dog barking, which was strange because they had never complained about his dog barking in the past. In fact, the dog had occasionally barked at night. When Victor would go to investigate what the dog was barking at, he would see a parked car start up and speed away. After police issued a quote-unquote final warning, the family reluctantly gave their pet to some friends. The very next evening, Victor was shot in the head as he sat reading in his home. The bullet took out his right eye and parts of his jaw. A neighbor who volunteered a detailed description of the assailants to the police uh, was never contacted for follow-up questioning and began receiving anonymous phone calls warning him to shut up. Two days after Victor was shot, the U.S. Senate unanimously adopted a resolution requesting the FBI to investigate both attacks. U.S. Attorney General Tom Clark, the governor of Michigan, and the UAW itself also demanded an investigation. Although Attorney General Clark, FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover's putative boss, pointed to possible violations of the Fugitive Felon Act and several other federal statutes, Hoover refused to move, claiming a lack of jurisdiction because no federal laws had been broken. Neither the FBI nor the Detroit police followed up on any of the leads uncovered by UAW private investigators, nor did they come up with any of their own. No corporate officials were ever questioned. Ford strongman Harry Bennett, one of our favorite villains, who had been implicated in the 1938 attempt against Walter, was never interrogated. In fact, Bennett was Hoover's golfing buddy and was considered a valuable ally who gave the FBI access to his files on quote-unquote communist activity, mm -hmm. consisting mostly of dossiers on labor activists. <laughs> Man, so, I, bet you, I bet you they turned up a whole lot of shit on their friends, you know, attacking these guys in their house. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this case is really important. Like, one, Victor got it a lot worse than Walter did. I mean... He, was he did survive that shooting, right? He did survive that shooting yeah. amazingly. They did not know that he was going to, but like, I mean, he was, he was fucking shot bad. I mean, um, was an I think I've seen job, video like, footage of him being interviewed later on in life, and like, he looks better than you think he would, but he's still visibly like a little wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he does look pretty good considering. I, I, oh, yeah. Like, real good. He's got an eye and stuff, and I'm like, look, I don't, I'm not asking any questions about what that eye is, but like there is an eye. I would assume that he had a stroke, not that he had had half his face blown off. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So again, this just goes to show you like at the time shit was dangerous. Like at its peak union power was funnily enough. What hurt us more than like assassinations, assassination attempts and severe beatings uh, was simple fucking legislation. That's what killed us more than anything. And I think, I don't know what lesson there is to learn there, but like shit was real back then and it wasn't enough to stop the workers. But like the Taft fucking Hartley Act, unfortunately seems to be all powerful. 
it's one of those things. But um, yeah, this goes to to show you the police seem to know ahead of time that this was coming. So I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's Harry Bennett or if that's mob connections. And there were many theories out there, but of course the police never followed up. They didn't really do anything. They knew about it. They let it happen. They had hoped, assuming he would be dead. But yeah, I mean, the police are the private force for capital. And so we can see that very clearly here. Now, of course, to the listeners, I'm assuming we're going to have some way of putting source material in like the videos we use the sources in show notes in some way. I do encourage you to check out Michael Parenti's video uh, interview about Walter Ruther and his life. He goes into detail on this shooting more so than we can do. But I mean, look, if you don't know Michael Parenti, uh, you're missing out. Go listen to Michael Parenti. But this interview, he, he does go through this shooting, the abduction attempt and the shooting on Walter in pretty good detail. And he goes through what will be coming up to in the next one or two episodes. Hopefully it's just one, but we'll be going through the plane crash that had a lot of, we'll call them anomalies. I just wanted to say, speaking of anomalies, is like, just to reiterate, the fact that a neighbor gave a detailed description of the assailants that shot Victor to the police And not only did they not come and question that person further and follow up with them, they also called the person and told them to shut the fuck up. Like, if you want to even just do the plausible deniability thing, you could just ignore that person and then not follow up with them, like not do your job and not take the reports and not take that description. But like, then also calling them, it's like, you're making it too obvious. Oh, to be fair, they were anonymous call. I mean... (laughs) yeah, Yeah. That OPSEC is all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and so it's worth noting, I don't have a ton of my notes, but um, another one of our heroes that we had introduced in in the previous episode, Janora Johnson, uh, the woman who created the emergency brigades and the women's auxiliary, um, around the same time, she was beaten with a lead pipe in her bed by an assailant. Jesus. Um, I think, I, I think I came across something somewhere that maybe implied that this was a mob-related thing, um, and it may have had implications for these other shootings, but I can't remember, and I, I don't want to uh, I don't want to go on the record saying any one thing um, in particular, but uh, at, around the same time, uh, even Janora Johnson, awesome organizer, uh, she was beaten almost to death with a lead pipe in, in her bed. Yeah. So, I don't yeah. think a really funny scenario in my head where, like, Victor's neighbor... Is at the police station, like describing the shooter to like a sketch artist, and then the sketch artist is done, and he's like, "No, you fucked up. You just described the detective investigating your case." Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, it's um, it seemed like it was pretty blatant. So yeah, I mean, they made some real serious fucking enemies, and apparently, the police was one of them enemies. Obviously. All, all it takes to be an enemy of the police is be a working person. So that was that was easy from the get go. Yeah. All right. I want to touch on one more thing, I think, before we uh, wrap this one up. Also, at the end of 1949, an attempt to bomb the UAW headquarters in Detroit was foiled by an anonymous call to a Detroit Times reporter. Uh, according to the caller, the explosive was planted when the big guy, by which they meant Walter, uh, was in the building. Investigations conducted by the police and FBI, uh, you'll be surprised to find, uh, did not produce any clues. Nah. <laughs> um, Why would it? So, I mean, 
I, I just want to demonstrate. I mean, this is the episode where we're showing this pattern that like they were attempted to be abducted and people were caught and the legal system did nothing. Yeah. We've got complicity from police and detectives. We've got complicity from bosses, whatever, you name it. There is a real pattern here of trying to fucking kill Walter, Victor, uh, and other labor organizers at this time. So, like, again, for all the criticism of Walter, I mean, he was pissing off the right people. And, I mean, so were any uh, labor leaders at the time. But shit was fucking real back then. So, I don't know. I think there's something to be learned from it. But, you know, and one of those things may be uh, one of those questions that I brought up earlier in the series which I'll probably re reiterate on the next episode, kind of that question about legality and how we should consider following the fucking law when look at the results and look at what, I mean, look at the legal system we're working in here. I don't know what I'm, I, I'm not suggesting anything in particular, but, you know, there may need to be a different way besides just following the letter of the law and striking in a way that the capitalists can tolerate. Um, Remember kids, it's only illegal to overthrow the government <laughs> if you fail. Yeah, pretty much. So uh, anyway, that's about where I think we'll wrap up for now. I'd like to believe that I can wrap this whole story up with a nice bow in one more episode, but uh, I'm going to be real with you. Could be two. Yeah. But I mean, honestly, no pressure. I have no problem doing two three more episodes if you want like this is this is nothing but fun like I, I i enjoy doing this so yeah don't feel any pressure to uh wrap it up any quicker than you feel you need to i'd rather go on all the tangents and the whole fucking point of it like we we are learning yeah. about this stuff and then we all react and it's it's fun to do i think this is a good way of just learning about these events because you feel like in real time we are hopefully asking the questions that listeners are having of the person who's yeah. giving us this information and then you know hopefully going down some rabbit holes but yeah i think uh just regarding your last point I think you did a good job wrapping that up and not saying anything actionable. So, uh, so props to you for doing that. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm trying real hard. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, usually I'm the one who just says fuck it and, and makes the actionable claims. <laughs> okay. Hold on. So while we're on the, while we're on the topic now, see, I was going to wrap up, but now we're not going to, no. um, no, I'm just kidding. We're going to wrap up, but I did want to just point out a totally non-actionable thing that is good to know if you might be doing a paint job on your car in the future. Mm -hmm. I just wanted listeners to know if you maybe have to paint your car, you have to obviously sand your, your car down and get remove the old paint. One of the quickest ways to remove the paint on your car is by using a chemical stripper. Okay. Turns the paint into fucking spaghetti on top of your car. Great. Easy to remove, you know, and paint is of course very, very expensive to repair, you know, body shops, very, very expensive, but if you do it yourself. That chemical stripper will cut that time down quite a bit and it works really fast. So all you have to do is put it onto the car and it will burn through that fucking paint like butter. Connor, you, you gotta be have careful. To... You don't want to get the wrong message across. Be very careful to not get this on anyone else's car. Yeah. Because yeah. It oh, takes well, the yes. off so quickly. And yeah, no, no, don't like don't do this if you're like next to a squad car or something. Like yeah, you know. don't hang around. Definitely immediately leave. Well, yeah, the fumes are probably not great. You don't want to stand there. Although, right, wear a mask, right, right. It looks really cool when it bubbles up. Like, it is fucking cool. But very quick way to remove your paint. Uh, then you wipe it off, and then you sand what's left after that. But this is, if you're going to be painting your own vehicle in the near future, easiest thing to do, chemical stripper, which you can buy at most auto stores, including those that are far away from your home. 
Yeah, um, with cash. So get, use yes. cash. Cash is king. <laughs> Leave your cell phone at home. You don't want to get any of this stuff on like your metadata or anything like that. No, so, like don't use Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I don't know you how know, you would. <laughs> yeah, Connor, I have a I have a, a similar tip. Uh, just a, a safety <laughs> tip. If you're if you're changing the spark plugs on your car. And you happen to like, let's say, drop one and shatter the porcelain part. That little porcelain part, if it hits a car window, it'll shatter that window. Oh, you know, it? even just with a little bit of force. So you want to be real careful with that porcelain. It's very. I always hear that, but there's a lot of like things that will shatter a window if you throw it at it. Yeah, that are easier to get. Fair enough. Away. Yeah. Oh no! All of us, I guarantee you, have spark plugs laying around everywhere. I like landscaping bricks personally, but. <laughs> Wait, Brian, just um, just to be clear, I, I never knew the, the full thing. Do you have to actually break the porcelain off or do you just leave it on the spark plug if you were to drop it on a window by mistake? I mean, if you throw a, a spark plug at a window or I mean, drop a spark plug on a window, it, it would probably break it. But um, I think it's it's when it's broken, it uh, it has very sharp edges and that uh, does something. I'm not really sure. Yeah, if you were to vertically drop it, Sorry, horizontally yeah. drop it. <laughs> yeah, so we're full of fun tips. Tires from chips at night. Get your chemical stripper at a hardware store that's far away from you with cash. Yeah, full of tips <laughs> over here. Rental car agencies are full of free car parts. <laughs> I mean, I think those are all very useful, very practical, handy tips for anybody who's just interested i mean whether you're a car person you can scrap a catalytic converter for a few hundred bucks and uh uh rental car agencies are just full of them that's why i was really surprised that that doesn't happen more often like when you said that they don't have very heavy security i'm like that's surprising considering what happens with people's catalytic converters lately that is a recent development like cats have always been stolen but it's it's definitely been more egregious than normal lately so i'm interested to see what comes of that the ducks at the park are free. You can take them. The government doesn't want you to know this. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. All right, well, let's wrap it up there. Do you guys want to plug anything besides your uh, podcast? I mean, obviously, everyone should check out the Cars and Comrades podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe there. You can find it, I'm sure, anywhere podcasts are available, right? Yeah. Pretty and, sure. And you I'll should like listen to our podcast because it's good. <laughs> Very good. Brandon has changed this dude. Was that a better sale than normal for me? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I was going to say, uh, just send us an email, carsandcomrades at gmail.com. If you agree, disagree, just want to, you know, rant or say that you love us or hate us or whatever. So our DMs are open. Nice. Yeah. Plus we're on, uh, you know, Instagram and uh, Twitter. And makes, yeah. Makes one of us. <laughs> we're still <laughs> I will tag the Twitter, but I cannot respond to you, but it's at turn left to spot. Give me seven days. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> By the time this gets released, it'll be back on or, or shut back off. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. I have a backup at turn left is one, three, one, two, if we need it. So we'll see. By the time this comes out. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll just uh, round out the rest of the plugs. Then for uh, Ward, I'll plug his uh, Instagram pages. That's millennial leftist. And his backup, Millennial Marxist. And then for Jaron, his website is jaronperlman.com, J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. Cosper's Patreon is patreon.com slash C-O-S-B-E-R underscore. And for everything else, check out the link tree. That's link tree slash turn leftist. And uh, I'll just read off our Patreon subscribers real quick. 
So thank you as always to Van, Liquidated Bourgeoisie, Tasha, Sigmund Clark, Stewart, Pete, Colton, Elverbear, Allison, James, Raven Enigma, Marvin, Hey Frida, Not Drinking Water 69, James, sorry, James, Mad Boy. I should probably not give out people's last names or any kind of communist thing whatsoever. <laughs> uh, Mad Boy, Christian, Elam, Venture X, Jared, another Jared, William, Bro, you know Marks, David, Tristan, Devante, your mother, Charlotte, James, Bishop Mew, Rural Marxist, John Bovey Fan 420, Kyle, John Claude Manhands, Mail, Phil, Blackwater Janitor, and Jerry's. Thank you all. Sick. I think that's all I have. We can wrap it up there. Like I said, I think I think the next episode I can wrap it up, but I'm going to be trying to go through the 50s and 60s, uh, and I know Brandon's going to have a chunk of drum stuff, um, Mm -hmm. so it could be two. Okay, cool. That works. All right, well, thanks again for uh, writing up all these notes and doing all this research and teaching us some more about Walter Ruther. I can't wait to uh, wrap it up, whether it takes another episode or two, and we will see everyone next time. So uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening, and thank you guys again for coming on. This was fun. Not a problem. It was fun. Thanks for giving me a reason to go to bed today. Oh, yeah, guys. <laughs> Later. Peace out. Later. Later. Have a good one. Bye, Brian. Yep, Bye, Connor. Yep, adios. Poverty. Half a million Americans at any given time are sleeping out under bridges and in gutters. Is that not violence to force a human being to sleep in the fucking street while while the rulers that dictate this entire system have four or five or six fucking houses? That's violence. If you ain't first, you're last. You know? There's a joke that circulated in Russia in 1992 in the, after the first year of the free market paradise. And it went like this. Question, what did capitalism accomplish in one year that communism could not do in 70 years? Answer, make communism look good. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. Much of what has been said about communism in this country is simply not true. She'll something my body. Yeah. And that's nothing but pure and simple old-fashioned communism. The U.S. government is the largest terrorist organization on planet Earth, and they have no right to wag their finger at anybody over anything having to do with ethics, morality, or human rights. America is a human rights violation in and of itself. 